this is the sound of cracking beers. All right. Shout out to my friend Joe Nolan, who cannot be here with us. Uh, he'll be back in a few weeks. And in the meantime, I'm going to carry this thing, and it's just going to get weirder and weirder. So, Joe, you better get back. Um, all right. Let's get in the zone here. All right. So, welcome to the Art Fight Club podcast. This is episode four, and um, this is going to be awesome. So this came together pretty quick. Um, two of what I would consider to be, um, is it okay if I call you guys my home, my homies? Yeah. Okay. Duh. Duh. <laughs> so, um, so we've got here, we've got, um, especially if you're in Nashville, you have got to already know about the Nashville Walls Project, and if you don't, you're going to find out all about it. Um, and so I've got Brian Greif here, uh, who is a myth and a legend and, uh, you know, I had to pay him a lot to get in, get in here. Um, but he, we came to a, an agreement. When do, when do I get paid? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and then also I've got, uh, Chris Zydek, um, who's uh, a master mural painter, street artist. What do you call yourself? Chris, uh, an artist, an artist. <laughs> all right, let's get, uh, let's get these levels right. Okay. So, um, all right now, uh, Brian, you have been in Nashville for a, a minute here and you've made a lot of things happen. And b- by the way, if you hear cars going by, it's cause I got the window open. So this is how we roll. Um, so this podcast, you know, you guys are probably not really fully aware of what we're doing, but basically we talk about, uh, ultimately the the fight of of all creativity um that we all have to deal with we're we're either dealing with ourselves we're dealing with the man we're dealing with whatever and i don't know anybody that has more stories of dealing with uh creative adversity than than brian um and you you probably can see some of these things on the what you call it the netflix um there's a documentary called saving banksy that uh features brian and um yeah, so I just wanted to get you guys in here because you're I, all we do is have amazing conversations and we never ever can capture it, right? So here we are. Um, so again, thanks a lot. Uh, so that's basically the the lay of the land. Um, but as far as uh, you know, Brian, you've got uh, you know I, you guys are painting a mural that's what two blocks from here, and so first I, we can just get that out of the way and just talk about what that is, what's happening. And we've also got John Bucco here in the room. He's lurking, so, lurking sure. the legendary John Bucco, um, who's, who is pretty key to this, this project that's going on right now, too. So it's cool to have all three of you here, actually. Um, but anyway, so what's happening down the street here? This is like, a, I mean, I'm, I'm two blocks away, and I know you guys. And I was like, wait, what in the hell is going on? This is awesome. Fuck, you're right. So what's happening? Well, <clears throat> the building owner contacted me, I don't know, two months ago. And he said, uh, I've got this big warehouse and I want a mural on the side of it. So I came and met him. His name's Dean White and his son, Will White, own the building. And it's massive. It's like 25 feet tall and 400 feet long. Yeah. 
in his, you know, he wanted one artist to paint a mural on the entire side of it. And when I told one. him one mural, one artist, one <laughs> mural, and when I told him what it, that would take and how much it would cost, he wanted to know if there was an alternative. And I said, well, the best thing you can do is rather than have one muralist paint that giant wall, let's invite 10 local artists, give them each a section of the wall and just let them go to town, let them do whatever they want. And he said, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. And it was totally a blank canvas. You know, a lot of times when you talk about struggle, the struggle we have with building owners is they want to dictate to the artists. Yeah. Well, we want you to paint something. We want you to paint the Nashville skyline or some guitars. Ain't that the truth? And and these guys just said, we don't want even want to see design sketches. Just let them go. Let them do whatever they want. But to they do. but they already had some belief in probably a lot of your other like this is what's happening right is you've you've done so many things now in Nashville in such a short amount of time that people are starting to just trust, I think, what's going on a little bit more? A little bit more. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like the first, you know, we begged building owners for a year and a half before we found somebody that would allow us to do murals, even by international artists in Nashville. Yeah. And we've gotten to the point now where most people still want to dictate it. You know, they, they, they want to, I go through that on every mural that we do, where the first conversation with the building owner is they all say, um, we'd like something Nashville-themed. And I call it the Applebee's syndrome. And yeah. I literally tell them, oh, so you want to be an Applebee's restaurant, right? You know, there are lots of Nashville-themed murals, and most people forget them. You know, and the best thing you can do is give the artist a blank canvas and just say, do your best work. Yeah. And if the building owners that go with that are the ones that get the best murals and the ones that really have impact. And yeah. that's, we, we just will be finished tomorrow with this one and, and you've been what 10 days in or something about a week we started yeah, we, we did lift placement on saturday so a week ago saturday and uh most of the murals are pretty much done now so it was a week i yeah. will be done tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> come on chris come on chris will be done in 2019 <laughs> chris is almost done with his early sketches yeah it'll be yeah. awesome so yeah and so uh, and one of the things i i you know just kind of can see or or have heard or whatever is I know that one of the battles you're fighting too is that I think that some people have taken sort of uh, some people are not thrilled with bringing international artists in and this is like I think a a non uh, a nonstop sort of conundrum for you where it's like this should only be for local artists doing you know whatever painting guitars and this kind of thing but this is a nice way to sort of get a lot of local artists a lot of visibility all in one play um and that works against a lot of the things that i've been you know you kind of pick up where people get a little bit pissed off you know because they think this out-of-towners are coming it was it was bad at first you know when we announced the nashville walls project and that we had Heracut from germany roan from australia shu from amsterdam and some other international artists coming into town curiat you know, there were a lot of local artists that were mad. You're taking walls away from us and mm. you should be featuring local artists. And what I told them, because this is what happens in other cities, is you bring in a top international artist and have them do the biggest mural possible in a highly visible place. And it explodes for everybody. Yeah. And that's really what's so, happened. So Gitto Van Helton's mural, obviously, in this part of town at least, was the sort of harbingers in the way you're speaking, right? Yeah, you know, I, from the first mural we did, which was Heracoot downtown, you know, it, uh, we, Ava Boros, who co-funded Nashville Walls Project, and I spent, literally spent over a year 
finding walls, tracking down who the building owner was, begging for a meeting, and we'd meet with them and say, we want to do murals, and we'd show them photos, and they'd laugh. Well, you're not doing that on my building. And once the Heracoot mural went up and the Roan mural went up, then all of a sudden we didn't have to look for walls anymore. People were coming to us. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, as part of that, I would get people that would call like the Guido Van Helton mural on that huge silo. That's a development company. They called and said, we want, you know, a top international artist to do that. But at the same time, they had other walls and they said, and we'd like local artists to do murals on these other walls. And that's something that we've started to do with the developers and building owners that have come to us is say, if you're doing an international artist, we'd like you to also provide a wall for a local artist. In the spring, we had Jason Woodside from New York and Ian Ross yep. uh, from San Francisco. In the in, Gulch. In the Gulch. And we asked, you know, the, the artists usually say, I want to bring an assistant. And we asked the international artists, you know, would you please use a local artist as your assistant? which Jason Woodside and Ian Ross both did. Chris assisted and helped with the Ian Ross painting. But at the same time, M Street, or Market Street Enterprises that owned those buildings, we said, you know, if you're doing these two murals by these international artists, we'd like you to provide a wall for local artists. So mm -hmm. they did, you know, near Barista Parlor in the Gulch in Nashville, and that was Nathan Brown and, and Chris uh, did that wall. Yeah. So, you know, so... There's less, especially when we've we've done big multi-artist murals. We did a uh, a year ago uh, in July. We did a an uh, a mural with five local artists in Printer's Alley downtown. Yeah, you know and that was Herb Williams, that was Chris, that was Emily Miller, Brandon Donahue, and Sam Dunson. So we've done we've done more local murals than we have murals by international artists, and I think that's helped change a lot of people's minds but there's still people out there that you know question my intent <laughs> um, that means you're probably doing something right because i mean here's the thing is like you can't you can't be doing anything and and come through unscathed if you're really pressing if you're really making something happen you know and um and I, I think it's chris you and i were talking about earlier too it's like what, there's this like is there is there a scarcity of walls i don't think so i mean it seems like there's a lot of walls a lot this is a in the big picture cities like nashville are really nashville's actually been quite behind and so it's really open season well and there's no monopoly yeah. on the walls it's not like <clears throat> brian and ava own the city's walls yeah it's like if you want one by all means go and ask yeah. someone you know, probably say, okay, yeah. if you don't do something lewd <clears throat> on it. Uh, but like some folks didn't, I don't know if their egos were in the way. I don't, I'm not sure, but they don't want to be assistance to someone who comes into town to paint. And I really, I didn't give a shit. It's like, well, they feel like that's a subordinate thing that the, the, I, like puts them down in some way. Or? I, I yeah. suppose so, man, but babies. I, I, <laughs> I, I didn't care. He's like, well, I get to paint for a week. That's just more chops I, I pick up. And then I get to pick up some stuff that Ian knows that I don't because everyone knows something that you don't. Yeah. No matter what your yeah. craft is, photography, film, painting, yeah. music, writing, you name it. You know? And that's the thing is you have background in almost all the things you just mentioned, too. So like <laughs> yeah. you've 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 been down some a lot of different creative paths and, and have a lot of experience in a lot of different realms. Right. And I'm no stranger to collaboration. You know, yeah. I'm a, I'm my other job. 
I guess you could say, is production designer, art director for film, and film is one giant collaboration. So, and in that, you know, you have cinematographer who's above me, and the producers and the yeah. director, and I have no problem working with people like that. And Ian and I ended up getting along really, really well. And his wife <laughs> took me aside at one point near the end because I was doing his outlines for him on the bottom half of the mural, mm-hmm. and she was like, "He's never let anyone touch black paint with him." Oh wow. And uh, I guess I proved myself my line work. <laughs> yeah. That's the one thing I take seriously with what I do is my line. So tell work. me about like tell me about what I mean. Obviously, line line work. I can deduce that it's lines, but is that like why is that closer to? What about an artist process? Why is that sort of a, a closer or more sort of sacred kind of territory? Well, usually you have in the, the drawing phase, and then you have. Uh, fills and shading then you do line work mm. and the fills you could just have anybody come in and help you get a roller like i drew that shape make it purple for me okay i can do that you know it can be kind of loose and you go in in the end and you make a clean line mm. uh black usually around that purple shape and that's your line work it's like comic book it's the black in the comic book you know so that's that's the clean thing that that makes it all uniform and and finished and, I see. But regardless of all that, Ian and I became really good friends. We traded artwork. I gave him two of my skate decks that I painted. I got his apparently his favorite painting, which is also gave him my favorite painting that I'd done to this point. Cool. Made that trade. And he's coming back on Friday and staying with me through the weekend. And he has a show here in Nashville on Saturday downtown. Oh, he's back. Yeah. He'll be yeah. back Friday. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He's doing a show at uh, Arts Company mm-hmm. on Fifth Avenue. Oh, wow. Baller, man. He's He's killing it. He's just in Portugal for like a month. And he does those uh, like those sand paintings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah his rake paintings. The rake. Yeah, they're unbelievable. Nuts. Yeah, I mean, that's always like like the people that really don't know anything about street art on large scale in terms of murals, and that would probably include me. Like when Guido came here, I got a real education about sort of because that was such a massive. I mean, it's a it's a two hundred foot tall silo that's you know he's doing photorealistic work on you can't help but sit there and the, the prevailing question for everybody is like well how does he do that you know and it's like this kind of sort of almost mystical level yeah it's wizardry uh, yeah i mean but there's quite a process to it that that actually sort of makes sense you know but one of the things i didn't even pick up i mean obviously i learned about you know a lot of the details and obviously you go through gridding and then you have your photo and you have things laid out and then you're just taking pieces at a time and you're rendering it in small doses or ways to sort of perform the more composite image but one of the things that he was talking to me about that i was like oh shit was uh talking about how the the angle of view especially for something so tall like you have to uh, uh, account for the sense of proportionality uh as the eyes work on the ground Right. So that, you know, so if you look at it from 400 feet looking down, it's not going to be quite in the right. It's almost going to be sort of, I guess, what would be like convex or concave, like whatever, you know, by proportion. I don't know which one it would be, but it was almost like that's how it worked. Is that I was it's just like, like the bird's eye, worm's eye view. Like yeah, you. Yeah. yeah. You're a kid. Only I had these books that like show you how to draw comic books. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and they had these like uh, graphs and how to's and it was like worms eye view birds eye view it's like it's perspective thing you know and like yeah. you draw things larger that are going to be further away from you so they can seem like they're in proportion to what you're seeing but they're they're not if you 
were to look face on at them, they would be yeah. out of proportion. The funny thing about the Guido mural is, I mean, he does, yeah, he puts chalk on the front of the structure he's painting, these big chalk X's as reference points, and there's a photography process then, and then a Photoshop process, and he uses the photos with the grid marks on the building when he's up there painting his references. So if people aren't familiar with the mural, there's a elderly man on the front of this 200 foot tall grain elevator. And that's the, that actual painting is 170 feet tall. And then on the other side of the mural, there are two little kids reaching up towards a window. And so when we did the gridding for the old man, that worked great. And he used the reference photos. When we did the gridding for the kids, it rained that night, oh, washed yeah, all yeah, the yeah. chalk marks off. <laughs> and so Guido and I were there the next morning and he was debating whether or not to put more chalk marks up, which would have taken another day. And he said, no, I'm just going to freehand it. Right. So he would have did it with no reference That's marks at nuts. all. Okay. And so, and also to, this is another thing, Chris, you and I were sort of talking about earlier. And def, so, by, you know, I was around for the whole, the 17 days of Guido's mural. And like I said, that was certainly an education. I got, you know, to film all of that. And that was amazing. Um, but, the, but the thing about, uh, you know, like, so the, the, the grid lines, so you're in a situation where you have equipment that you've rented that costs anywhere from like one to three or $4,000 a day that is pressing on, on, on the artist and the process and you're battling weather. There were tons, cause I was there every day. There were storms. There was all kinds of crazy stuff that went down. That was just, you couldn't, you know, work in or, or whatever. Uh, so here, you know, here's, Here's Guido with all this, you know, all of his, his grid lines gone. And it's like, well, if you, if even just the simple decision to say, okay, well, I'm going to put these basic anchor points of how I'm going to understand how to paint this thing. I'm just not going to, I'm just going to forego that not only because of just that's how good he is or whatever, but this is a decision that actually saves, you know, thousands of dollars. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> that boom lift was a 150 foot tall boom lift and we had to truck that in from Atlanta. Yeah. There is no boom lift that tall in Nashville. Yeah. And we had it for a short period of time. You know, a piece of equipment like that, you can't rent it forever because other people want it. And so, you know, we had it for two weeks and it was like, this is the it. end of two weeks. That's it. We're yeah. taking it out. Somebody else has got it. So, see, I just think that's so crazy. Did like, it not work for a minute? Oh, yeah. The first day, <laughs> first day didn't work. <laughs> And he has to start from the top and work his way down. He can't start from the bottom, work his way up. And we had like 30 mile an hour winds the first two days. And he'd try and go up and it was too windy and have to come back down. And He was wigging, man. We talked about that oh, yeah. at night. He was like, never been up that high on a lift before. He's been using like swing stages or a smaller lift or something like then that. Then he turns around and goes to Finland and does uh, a bigger 200 one. foot tall yeah. On, yeah. on a 185 foot tall boom lift. And the photo of him on that lift is... Mind blowing! Shout out to our friend Guido, risking his life. <laughs> yeah, yep, to live the life. But the one in Finland doesn't count as his tallest one, and I've told him why. <laughs> it's because <laughs> forty feet of that mural is below sea level. Oh, so if you count technicality the footage above sea level, it's only one hundred and sixty feet, <laughs> which makes the one here in Nashville still as tallest. See, there we go. Brian's pride and joy there. Yeah, right. And then, um, and then the one that Mr. Bucco and you guys are all doing here, it is the tallest on its side. Yeah, it's 
by a wide margin. I think, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's about <laughs> what subtract. I'm terrible with math. It's three hundred six three hundred and sixty feet long. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the lifts are not quite as tall, but there's more of them. Four. Four lifts. Four lifts. So in the back of your mind, Brian, are you like, hey, guys, I want you to do whatever you want, but just hurry the fuck up. No, well, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, somebody asked me once, you know, because when we're doing murals, I'm the crazy guy that sits there from the time the first artist arrives until every artist is gone every day. And somebody, I think it was when we were doing the Jason and Ian murals down in the Gulch, said, what's your favorite part of this process? And I said, when it's over. <laughs> you know, and you can't, you know, you can't put any i don't say anything to artists when they're painting a mural i never tell them to hurry up fix that he does to me do you think it no i mean you can't (laughs) you can't yeah you just gotta let it happen yeah yeah with artists i don't you know it doesn't matter if it's musicians or or muralists or you know artists that i work with on gallery shows that sort of thing you can't put any pressure on them they do it on their own time and i've never we've done dozens of projects and you just let them go and they'll get it done as long as you're supportive and you stay out of the way. So I try to be supportive, make sure that anything they need is there. And then I stay out of the way. You do it. Everyone loves you. I've talked to everyone that's come here that I've met. No, which hasn't been everybody because mm-hmm. I have products of my own going on. I got film stuff. Well, I did. I don't have that much going on anymore in film, but everyone that I've met and talked to is a big fan of Brian. I'm a big fan of uh, Brian yeah. just by name. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, and it's been super cool for me to get, um, you know, sort of, uh, on the train as far as being able to have the pleasure of visually documenting these things that are, I think, terribly difficult to visually document. Um, and also there's like the, you know, so, um, anybody listening, whatever, I do a bunch of drone, drone related things. Um, one of my many, um, geek worthy non-cool uh traits whatever man thousand hustles <laughs> a thousand hustles but that's it's been like the you know the the neatest thing to be able to because I, I, I think that most most of my life as far as like making stuff creating things it's always just been of and for whatever my point of view is and just doing it of and for myself with no any other um thoughts about it but it's been really cool to sort of give everything that I have to a project that is really only giving light to what somebody else is doing and sort of in this meta kind of uh, creative um, way. And then even better to figure out that like, you know, everybody's cool, man. Like, this is cool. This is, this is good. Like there's, there's people that understand what it is to, to do this stuff. And, you know, for me, I, I just, I couldn't take it anymore. Like seeing really kind of, I don't know. Maybe I'm a snob or uh, shitty high on myself. Yeah, shitty footage, and just like I'm a snob, and just kind of a trained outlook. There's like a trained outlook that you see. You see the same types of things over and over again. Same thing with like old skate videos. Everyone is like also on a skateboard with a fisheye lens, a little camcorder, and everything looks the exact same. Yeah, a lot of that same thing with with the street art world is not trying to. I'm not busting anybody's chops. It does their thing. Do your thing, man. Make your yeah. Keep. Keep working. I'm not talking shit about you personally. I'm yeah. just saying, like, a lot of the videos done have a formula. Yeah. And trust me, I know, man. Like, I would say my biggest hobby is researching the scene that I'm in, being a part of, growing into. 
Yeah. Whether that be the gallery scene, the lowbrow pops realism scene, or the street art graffiti scene, all of that. And I watch, I'm on like 30 different websites looking at all the new stuff coming out every day. Mm. And there's a lot of videos that come out. You've you've seen a lot more than I have. Man, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But the videos, a lot of them are similar. Now, there's one that comes to mind that that one that won a staff pick on Vimeo from you know your Vimeo right yeah yeah I'm a big Vimeo snob all my film buddies you know yeah. staff picks that's like you know I saw the I saw the the pick the uh, the movie that you were uh, involved in oh shout out that was amazing <laughs> thank you thank uh, you um, but, but we can talk about that later yeah yeah uh, there's one on there for Connor Harrington called Old Norse and it is fucking beautiful and he was in norway Mm. and he did two murals three murals in norway and this amazing cinematographer filled like followed him around and shot all kinds of like beautiful b-roll and like him working and there's this beautiful like orchestrated like music behind it it was like i think original for that gorgeous and like people need to do that kind of thing more often that like it's art. Make it art. You yeah. know, like collaborate better with this instead of being like the skate yeah. video thing where it's like, you know, you film it, you do like weird mashup, like glitchy cuts. Yeah. And, you know, like, yeah, put it, put know. it some, some bad dubstep music and call it, a, <laughs> call it a day. But yeah, yeah, I mean, the thing for me was, um, and I'm, I'm not saying I've reached any sort of pinnacle with any of this stuff, but, um, there were several things I wanted to do. One of, one of them was, like I, being on the scene every day for 17 days wasn't mean I was there every hour of 17 days, but I was there at least once a day for, you know, at least a couple of few hours every day. And I, I felt like number one, that's, that's what you need to do to almost earn the right to, um, reflect whatever's going on. But otherwise you got basically people pop, you know, these kind of uh, tangential film kind of guy, people crews, whatever little, media company people whatever it is production companies and they would just come in they just kind of fly in pop in for a couple hours hey take me up on the lift let me get the the traditional you know and i was so the uh probably to a fault the opposite you know because i think even one point brian you were like if you want to go up in the lift it's fine i was like no that's like of all the things that this guy is dealing with uh in this case guido you know painting He's dealing with people constantly trying to get at him to ask him questions or talk to him or interview him the whole time. The last thing I'm going to do is I, I, I even told him, I was like, I, I think that this is sacred space. Like you're, if you're in the, what's it called? If you're in the top of the, the part of the lift that you stand in the basket, the basket, I was like, that's your, that's your space, man. Like I'm not, I don't need to, I mean, I've got a freaking drone. Like, I'll hover by you, but I'm not going to yeah, get in it. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't, you know, you don't need to, you know, this whole thing of like, okay, now I'm going to get a shot of you. Will you do this? Whatever. Like, I just didn't want to get into that business at, at all. And so well, I, I think I, the, for the murals, you know, everybody's always blown away by the finished product, yeah. but it, the most interesting thing is the process yeah. and seeing the whole thing unfold. Yeah. You know, and I'm a filmmaker too. And, you know, what I really respected, especially with the Guido mural is you were there every day. So you understood the process. So your ability to tell that story was Mm -hmm. much greater than anybody else. And we had lots of other people there documenting it, wanting to do videos of it. Mm. I think at at one time there were what, three drones up at once. Right. And here I am just kind of blindly walking in like, yeah. Oh, yeah. By the way, I watched every video that you did every yeah, day when I got home. Yeah. I, was, I was painting my mural in the barista parlor, you know, the Golden Sound, uh-huh. the Gulch, 
when I was when Guido was painting. Yeah, I would come hang out with you know Brian and Guido after that, drink beers, eat shitty hot dogs at the gas station, and then go home and watch the new footage. Yeah, um, well, man, that, that was that was the other test for me. I was like, can I do it? Because I mean, I I don't think anybody was thinking that this was expected i was not being you know i'm not getting paid or anything you know there's no expectation and i was passion, like man. but i was like yeah, i'll be damned if i'm if i've it's just like five or six days in i'm like i'm <laughs> out of pure stubbornness like i'm going to keep doing this because so i would shoot for uh, i mean you know i have i would probably get about two hours of footage every day and then have to come back sift through that really qu- you know quickly make it a quick edit and then and then upload it and then you know, I was working full time and doing all kinds of stuff during this time. I don't know how I did it, but, but I was so glad that I did. And then, you know, I don't know if like so after it's all said and done, um, you know, I, I I took all of that. Here's the other point I wanted to make. Like, and I you know, and I appreciate all this, but you know, uh, when you're Brian, when you're talking about uh, you know reflecting the process, which is really the most interesting part. The other part of the the, the aspect of the process is super key super important and i think that's my favorite thing to observe through these kind of projects but even further for me is like thinking about what is the the headspace of the person that's actually doing all of this work i kept seeing so let me explain this i guess real quick so you know when this when this mural was happening you know all these onlookers would come and go and come and go and it was so funny to watch people pull in onto the grounds you know fold their bed of their truck down or whatever and just and kind of just sit there, and then they would realize you could just watch them start to squirm after. This about, is fucking boring. <laughs> after like fifteen yeah. minutes, like this is nothing's happening. Like this is so painfully slow and monotonous. But but you know I like I I think I think I even told you this, Brian. Like during that process, I was like, you're sort of like the you're like this monastic kind of a grounding sort of force that happens there, and you're just there, fully present. But not, not you know, you're just in support. And then, uh, but yeah, these, these people would, would come in and there would just be, being there every day, I got a sense of there was this, there was a vibe. There was like a, an undercurrent of, of a, a, a small community of people supporting this, this person that's 100 feet in the sky doing this thing. And people just kind of just kept, you know, I, I would pull in some days and not even really talk to you. I might film for two hours and then split and it just didn't matter. And I loved that. It actually reminded me a lot of um, uh, when I was growing up, I went to my family was very involved in Native American spirituality quests and things. And so we spent a lot of time out west, you know, living with Native Americans, Lakota Sioux for, say, a month at a time. And uh, my mom, you know, did um, what they call on Blacha, like vision quests and all that, you know. And so when people were out what they call on the hill. These people were like, you know, uh, in this very concentrated exercise or vision quest. So they, they're up on the mountaintop somewhere, basically uh, listening to whatever the great spirit's going to tell them. And they're fasting and they're, you know, they're going through this process. And meanwhile, back at the camp, you know, um, everybody has a role or a job. And one of those things was, uh, you know, th- there was a fire that had to stay going all the time. So you would have duty, you know, like um, where, you know, like you know, you, you might have, and it's not like you're on Indian time as they call it, whether you can say that anymore, whatever you're on native American time. Uh, and, uh, so sometime around midnight to four, you'd have like the overnight shift or whatever. And so you would go and your job is just to sit there and be quiet and keep the fire going and you just keep, and, and that is creating some sort of groundswell of some sort of like a supportive energy that happens 
that sustains or is connected to the person that is out on the hill doing doing this thing. It very much reminded me of that. It's almost like a shamanistic kind of a ritual, which maybe you guys are like, dude, you're just tripping out. It's just like a guy painting no, a wall. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm with you on that. Dude, and what you story. were talking about yeah. uh, with the Native Americans, that's what we call Mount Thomas in the mountains. Mm. A lot of my friends up there had uh, wood-burning stoves. And, you know, th- it it wasn't about your clocks when you're up there in the mountains yeah. and, you ha- and you're living off your land. That It's not about the time of day it is. It's yeah. just, oh, it's not three. It's time to go get the sheep their food yeah. and put them in the, their pen tonight. Or it's time to chop more wood because, you know, we're like two cords short right now. And you name it. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, it doesn't really matter what time it is. But yeah, Brian is monkish. Monkish. <laughs> in his ability to just stay my, calm. My job is not to keep the fire going. It's to keep the boom lifts going. And keep people from, like, hurting, hurting themselves. <laughs> hurting other people. Yeah, and you know. the best damn buff jobs I've ever seen uh, in my life. Buff yeah, daddy. But, you know, when you, the last mural we did with an international artist was Bo Stanton. Yeah. Downtown Nashville, where we had an 85-foot boom lift parked in one lane of Fifth Avenue oh. North. And commerce down there? Yeah, yeah, which is one of the busiest. I mean, between the thousands of people walking down the sidewalks and we're a half a block from Ryman Auditorium, yeah. a block and a half from Broadway. That was nuts. And, you know, just making sure that, you know, we don't drop paint on somebody's head or back the boom lift into a car or yeah you know totally different a heightened set of risks compared to the silo which was its own isolated sort of property nothing immediately around the whole lift could fall over it wouldn't be great for ghetto but it wouldn't hurt anybody else but in this case with with Bo Stanton it was like yeah you were very small uh no margin of error there really no, no margin for error at all. You yeah. know, and it's very, it, that's a big mural. Um, it's 70 feet tall and almost 70 feet across at the bottom. Yeah. And he had two weeks to paint it. And, you know, the new city code is if you're blocking a street downtown, you can't, the boom lift can't be on the street until nine o'clock and it has to be off at three o'clock in the afternoon. And so, so trying to get everything done, yeah. calling the city, begging for Can we just paint an extra half hour today? Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. Um, you know, that's, that's why I say my favorite part of the murals is when they're all done. You have to deal with so many different things too. It's like, you think about an artist, a a normal sort of visual artist or painter or whatever, that's just got their studio. And then they're really just faced with like how much time, energy and focus and inspiration do I have to get this thing done? You know, there's no, there's no external element that's saying like, you know, there's no risk there's not, you know, these other constraints. I just think it's amazing. It's such a different, it, it really is sort of like a military operation that is, you know, uh, a creative one. I do my best to be self-contained. <laughs> yeah. To not, to not put any stress on anyone else. That's like always like a point that I make is to not have Brian make runs for me yeah. or bring me paint or need anything. I just, I want to hang out with Brian. Yeah. Brian's like one of my best friends in town and yeah. like, I'm glad I met him because we're a hell of a lot alike. So I don't want him to go anywhere because I want to hang out. Because I'm, always- <laughs> I'm the last mural I did with Chris before this one here in the Nations was in the down in the Gulch on McGavick Street, on the side of a restaurant called Whiskey Kitchen. And mm. so 
we had to build a ramp because to so that <laughs> oh yeah I so saw the scissors lift the oh slope God. sidewalk and so the 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 hardest part of that one was adjusting the ramp with these four by eight foot sheets of plastic that are meant for boom lifts to drive over and they weigh Jesus Christ they're right. heavy. And it just I thought it was plywood you. or something. So no, it's plastic. Oh. It's a super heavy plastic. And they have these like holes in them. They're about the size of your thumb. There's like four of them in the top of it. So grabbing this thing, having it on its All side it does is, is wreck your fingers when yeah. you grab it in the hole. Oh, God. So, so my job with Chris basically through that process was to help him adjust the ramp so the boom lift didn't tip over. And then when we were done painting at night, we walk across the street to this Mexican restaurant and have drinks. After, living before, living the life. After, man, oh yeah, after, after, and that's that was a Google was involved in this somehow. It was sponsored by Google Fiber. Yeah. All right. Well, I wish they would get over to this part of town, if they ever do. There is an article about that in Tennessee. Do you see that? Uh huh. They are having issues right now with. Uh, telephone lines because oh the, the, they the want to get on the poles one touch make ready yeah. and then all the other guys are saying we're not gonna A, yeah AT&T Comcast yeah. and NES own all of them yeah and there's some clause somewhere and I, I'm I don't know how Comcast and AT&T got on the same page with this either like well because they're, they're protecting they're, they can get into cahoots to protect themselves versus I, I think A&T AT&T allowed them in because it's going to be like monopolized mm-hmm. and then so Comcast came in and now they don't want a third party I don't know I'm making yeah. that up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it out of line at this point Chris has the most amazing Yeti cooler that can I get a beer out of that yeah. Oh, you have a yeah. never oh, Yeti cooler bag. I have a Yeti beer. cooler, but I'm it's not. Just... I'm not strong enough to unzip the Yeti cooler. <laughs> what is this thing? Uh, it's a, a Gen One. Yeti are you, are you sponsored by Yeti? Oh man, not, I wish, yeah. dude. I fish like a maniac. The ice, the ice in that cooler is the same ice that he started with a week ago when we did the murals. It's the same yeah. ice. It's still no. So I've got, yeah, I've got the regular, the regular Yeti, and it's insane. <clears throat> yeah. Um. Well, I put a little more in there, but uh, the the ice lasted me five days. What? See, yeah. this is what I'm talking about. And so here's the like from an innovation standpoint. What this is my question. When I, as soon as I got a Yeti cooler. And I realize there's cheaper alternatives and people, you know, whatever. But look, why, how long has the cooler been around and why the hell did it take so long for coolers to get innovated up to the point where that's, they're just doing now what they should have done from the very beginning. We've, we've been had. Well, again, (laughs) going back to the film, being, being a, a film nerd, Yeti makes amazing short films. If you've never seen the Yeti like Yeti short films on YouTube, my yeah. God, you're missing out. No, and they're a almost, they're a media company. Almost yeah. all of them get staff picks on Vimeo. Yeah, but there's one one of the first ones is about the Yeti story, and there's like this family from Austin, Texas, who were big fly fishermen and hunters, and they were sick of their coolers being subpar, and they would stand on them in their uh, their skiffs. And like the, the brackish water down there in Texas, when they were fly fishing, they'd get a little higher up on their on their hard cooler, and they would break. And they also didn't keep ice. And they're like, "Well, how can we fix this? Well, let's let's make one, you know." So they it was a family business that uh-huh. ended up making these like crazy, and they call themselves over engineered 
Yeah. I feel like I'm plugging the <laughs> <laughs> right. And I'm paying 200 bucks for a fucking cooler. <laughs> my, my response to that as a fly fisherman, if I stood in a cooler and it broke, wouldn't be, how do I make a better cooler? It would be, I need to buy another cooler. Because this one just broke. That's, yes. Yeah, that's what I would think, faster too. faster path. Or let me get off this and go over there on the uh, shore and hit that, that pool over there that I can't get to with the boat. But but now if you come up with something better, you end up on Shark Tank. So maybe that's motivation. It's true. Oh, Brian and I both are fly fishermen. See, uh, that's something I know that this is my favorite thing about getting older is I know that there's I, I have never tried to fly fish, but I know that I would suck at it completely. And I am I, I can just let it go. Like that's that's my favorite thing about like I'm never going to be good at hang gliding. I'm never going to be good at certain things. I did grow up fishing a lot. I'm not good at it, but oh, okay. But you just like I feel like I would be irritated by it. Like I didn't it's say like, it right. It's like golf, right? It really is. If you oh. hand somebody and a I golf club golf and too. say hit the yeah. ball, yeah. most people can't do it. It takes time and a lot of practice to figure it all out. Yeah, I, I'm all for things that I'm immediately irrationally good at right away. Me too. And then anything else, if I'm not immediately good at it, I'm not. I'm, I'm tired of sucking at things. Like I, I don't have time to suck like that instant validation instant validation but yes. so do you make your own flies and all that stuff no I don't, I don't do that that's next level right like that's that's it's a whole other zen thing i mean yeah. I have a lot of buddies that are fly fishermen and they they enjoy tying flies more than they do fly fishing so and for wrong. me i have no interest in tying flies to me i love fly fishing because you get to go to really beautiful places yeah, yeah me too but to be a good fly fisherman, you have to have all the qualities that I don't have, right? So, so it's something it forces me to, to yeah. yeah. You know, it's like you have to be patient and you have to be attentive to detail and all these other things that Sounds I'm not horrible. normally. <laughs> but it's, you, I mean, <laughs> you, you do it. You know? Yeah, yeah. I've been too busy doing murals to to do any fly fishing over the past couple of years. But I used to go over to the Norfolk and White Rivers over in Arkansas on a regular basis when it, the first time I lived in Nashville. And I'd spend three or four days over there. And even if you didn't catch any fish, just the whole, can I make this cast? Yeah. You know, and make the fly land right. And it's about, well, and here's the thing too, is I, I know that I'm sort of eschewing this whole thing, but anything that requires repetition and, and focus on movement in a particular way for a particular uh, yield, and you're, you're sort of doing this thing over and over again, making very small iterations and enhancements and testing something and failing and then responding to that and getting better and better and better. I'm all for those, that and kind it's of pursuit. It sounds like photography, really doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like kind of everything, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I really consider, you know, fly fishing an art form more yeah. than anything else. It's, yeah. You, you know, if you're, if you're good at it, it's because you spent a lot of time figuring out how to make it work, perfecting your casts and perfecting your drift and, mm. you know, <clears throat> how you tie the fly on is important. You know, if you get the knots wrong, the fish are going to see the knot and they're not going to bite the fly. And, you Jeez. know, there are all these things that go into it. I'm way more low, bro. I like the scenery. I, I like the I, scenery, too. I, I, I grew up, like, spin casting, <clears throat> bass fishing and catfish fishing and stuff. But I got into fly fishing, like, three, four years ago. My buddy, who I moved here with to Nashville from Johnson City, Tennessee, mm. also a great director. He directed the the short film you saw on. Oh, yeah. Know? Yeah. That was amazing. Thanks, and he's he's a really good fly fisherman. He'll he'll, I think he, he used to. I don't know. I have other friends that will go to a place 
look at what's in the air fly wise, like the bugs, yeah. sit down on the bank and tie one that mimics what they see in the air based on or the vegetation it's or various called, things it's right. called matching the hatch right now matching i'm the hatch yeah. I, ain't, I ain't on that i just so want to this is this has now become the fight club fly fishing podcast <laughs> sponsored by yeti right. yeah. <laughs> it, well it's just it's all about it's all about having a focus so we just have nine or ten of them. But, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Like, and I have to, I, you know, uh, we, we're, this is the fourth episode of this. And so clearly we have, you know, legions of people that are already really uh, into this. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people with already uh, manufactured expectations about what it is that we talk about. And Joe's not here and this whole thing. Have you, do you guys know Joe Nolan? Or he's, he's a, because he's an art critic and writer. Yeah. And I mean, he's a great guy. But sure. anyway, so he and I, like he, he and I are basically um, in the, at least in the artistic crowd or whatever you want to call it. Like there's not, most people think that uh, martial arts and mixed martial arts in particular is just sheer brutality and unbridled violence and, you know, I would never take you as being someone that would be into that or, you know, any of this. And that just, you know, you kind of can see the bad taste in their mouth kind of thing. That So we just thought, let's just go head on because w- there's so many, the, the way that we appreciate martial arts and the way that we appreciate uh, the art of fighting is no different than the way we appreciate the creativity or the, or the art in anything else. Mr. Bucco, you have your hand yeah, raised. I was, well, I was going to say that <laughs> fighting is really similar to art. It takes a lot of discipline and yeah. hard work. And yeah. it, they're really similar. Yeah. They're really similar. Yeah. I, love, I love Tony Jaw. Muay Thai. Yeah. Segway. Yeah. <laughs> My girlfriend. Oh. Who's a doctor. So she's not stupid. Yeah. Or a meathead. Uh <laughs> Did Muay Thai when she was in California for a while. Mm. I think quite a while. Mm. She's tough, man. She lifts a lot, too. She's fucking tough. Hard and shins. She's been also looking for a jiu-jitsu uh, dojo, what school, you, school sure. gym, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Around, we live out in Greenbrier, which is like, for you folks that aren't in Nashville, <laughs> even the ones that are, I tell you I live in Greenbrier, they're like, where is that? It's about 20, 25 miles north of Nashville, going towards Kentucky. She's looking for a jiu-jitsu spot out there because she's into grappling. Oh, yeah. As well. Um, but, Tell them how you hurt your shoulder this week, Chris. Oh. It wasn't from painting. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> uh, my girlfriend and I were wrestling. And, <laughs> and you in, lost. In, in, the, in the living room. Uh, and tweaked my shoulder pretty good. So to get, Wait, you my, tweaked it yourself? No, nah, she didn't. I, mean, I, I don't she know. body slammed him. Uh, <laughs> Did you do that thing where you lost your breath? You lose your breath. You're like, ah, 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 ah. like the wind knocked out of you. Oh, I'll lose my breath around her. She's amazing. Uh, oh. Nice points. Nice, yeah, right. So you're saying that being around her is the same feeling as being punched in the stomach? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's that's a thing. I mean, so you're wrestling and you lost. No. Did she pick you up? No, no, no. Like, did she put you down? Lost. She put you down. Nah, I lost because I hurt myself. But it sounds like you was somebody. Did somebody inflict this upon you, or did you do it to yourself? This is confusing. You're, I, I did it to myself. If this were a deposition, you would be all over the place right now. <laughs> oh, court of law, man. I'd be fucked. <laughs> now, now, I'm not gonna say that she beat me up or anything. Nah, I, I tweaked it, man. And getting on the lift, getting off the lift with my left arm, like it, I felt like it had to be popped. 
And then this morning I woke up and it felt better. Mm. I don't know what it was, but I tweaked it when we were wrestling. We do that a lot. We just like, I don't know, we start hugging and then it turns <laughs> it to we're on the ground. <laughs> yeah, we're on the ground like grappling with each other. Right. There's like one of two ways that that's going to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it'll go one of the ways. Man. Usually wrestling. So and what what is like her move or do you have, does she have a patented move? I don't know. Usually she's usually drinking red wine. I'm usually drinking craft or craft beer. What am I saying? Uh, That's a lie. <laughs> drinking light domestic beer. We're having silver bullet right now. Yeah, man. It's crafty. Courtesy Nashville Walls Project. Yeah. See, you guys, you guys are blowing out the NWP budget right now. Mm-hmm. There was still enough room in this project to buy a 12 pack of Coors Light for the last night that we were painting. Yeah. Oh, and, and, uh, and cheers, John Bucco, because here's the thing. You are you are the man on this mural. Yeah, John Cor... I, I was doing projects down in Texas, murals down in Texas, and then a, a gallery exhibit or an exhibit up in Canada. So John took this one, picked the artists, coordinated the artists, made sure that all the artists were there. So this was really John's project more than more than mine. He did an awesome job. We got we got all the weirdos from Nashville. We got wheat wheat pasting Emily Miller on it, who does these uh, beautiful little animals. Moby, who's ex graffiti artist, gone pretty much He's portrait now. He's well, in my eyes, he is. The, uh, the best you thing never was lose that. you never lose that. There were there were some of the more established. Nashville muralists yeah. involved, you know, Chris and Herb Williams and a couple of other people. And then you had graph guys that had never really done a commission piece, especially this size. And wow. so the opportunity wow. for these guys to like wow. have a lift and, you know, have their paint paid for and, you know, be able to, one of the guys uh, that was painting uh, was a big kick for him because the police kept driving by. Right. And looking at the wall and he came down one time and he said, this is the first time I've painted where the police come by and I don't have to worry about them arresting me. Wow. So you can smile and wave. Yeah. That's so cool. And Herb Williams, maybe tell us a little bit about how he's kind of a legend in Nashville. Yeah. Herb's probably, you know, he he is one of the best known Nashville artists right now. He is a international following. Herb does art using Crayola crayons. That's his primary medium is he does sculptures out of Crayola crayons and paintings out of Crayola crayons. But he's also, he does some amazing murals. Some, you know, one of the first murals I saw when I was here, Herb did on the side of a restaurant in East Nashville called Family Wash. And it's a, it's it's his glitch mule, which is a rainbow colored sort of, it looks like, yeah, it's, it's, so so Herb's amazing, and he's a wonderful guy yeah. to work with. He's really just a really good soul, good person. And he's kind of run down. Uh, he, he's basically the tip of the spear for North Nashville. Is that correct? No. no. Who am I thinking of? No, he uh, lives next to me. North North Nashville. Those are my boys in North. Yeah, the Do- collective Dojo and yeah. Woke Three. Man, those guys are on one. They kill it. Kill it. Like they are, I don't know how to describe them. They're I've known. Okay, so Dojo, uh, he he's one of the first artists I met moving to Nashville in 2011. I used to work at a at a uh, streetwear boutique. 
<laughs> just like so not me, you know. Is that is that just code for American Apparel? No, <laughs> it's like what all the cool hip hop kids wear, you know. Uh, City trends, skate, skater kids, <laughs> city trends, man. Is this he doesn't part? want to admit it, but it's 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 a very street culture store called Forever Twenty One. <laughs> I've heard of that. <laughs> anyway. I met I met Dojo then, became good friends, and he's he's like, um, Can I have another one of these beers. Yeah, I don't think they would be opposed. Try to and open that. that zipper on the Yeti cooler. But my boys up north, I would I don't think they would be opposed to me saying this that they're they're like Afrocentric yeah, and they're in their art. Just a sissy. And uh, no problem. Sorry, I'm listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they're all about like keeping. Keeping the uh, community intact in North Nashville and the history that's been involved there from the past. Uh, Dojo is just a wealth of local knowledge. He grew up here. And he's very aware of the history of Nashville and how things came to be and who built what and how they were built and everything else. And um, they've done a really, really good job of, of... getting community behind them up on the Jefferson street scene. Their stuff is amazing. And, you know, I talked earlier about how building owners always want something, you know, Nashville based. This is different, you know, because this is the way they approach it and the history behind, you know, their images and the things that they do aren't sort of the generic, you know, Nashville images, right? There's a, what they do is really amazing, you know, and it is, it honors historical figures. It honors the culture. Um, they just did a mural, um, the big mural that they just did. I'm trying to remember where it was that Clarksville Pike. Yeah. I mean, I posted up photos of them putting that on Nashville walls project page and on my own personal page, just because it's, amazing what they did and the story mm. behind the figures you know the historical importance of the figures in that mural uh is something that everybody should take notice of wow and i could pick their style out of a thousand a thousand painting lineup it's like they've they've chipped away at their style to a point where it is recognizable which is fucking hard mm. like there there's an illustrator from san francisco called jeremy fish I'm sure Brian knows yeah. who he is. He's yeah. well known in the lowbrow world, the skate world, everything else in, in like the gallery scene. Fish or fitch? Fish. fish. As in F-I-S-H. Like a swimmy fly thing. fish. Like a fly fishing. Yeah. Good good revert yeah. back yeah, to right. tying it all together here, guys. Right. Yeah, good. Uh he had a quote that roughly went something like Getting a style takes about ten years of work. And in that time that you're working on your style in those 10 years, uh, you will emulate all of your heroes. Yep. And in that process, this should be private and not publicized. And when you develop your style is when you should have your coming out party about being an artist. And I see that every fucking day on Instagram. Like, I'll, I'll just go through on the things you may like whatever that button is second from the right or from the left it's like just explore or whatever based on things that you've liked and things like that and and people that you know follow me and like my stuff sometimes it's like where can they follow you (laughs) on instagram yeah yeah there you plug yourself zydecahedron z-i-d-e-k do that and you'll find it yeah um and i've seen so many artists that i admire and even myself being straight up copied 
Mm. I'm not hating on it. I'm not, I don't put them on blast. I'm not like, yo, fuck this page, man. They copy my shit. I make my living, you know, I don't care enough um, about that to do that. But it's like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be public. Just stay in your studio, hash it out, work it out. It's going to take a while. You're not going to get a hundred thousand fucking followers when you're copying someone else's work, you know, like. Because people can smell inauthenticity ultimately right and i don't I mean, think they know that they're young they're like yeah. how i was in college but i didn't have instagram when i was in college but here's the thing if, know, they're, like, if they're that young though they're not going to have the cognitive ability to also have this this higher wisdom of that is that is counter to every bit of their motivation their motivation is i want to do this and i want to get out and they are the social media general like the immediacy yeah. they want that stuff right now and but they post their but they put their stuff on blast man like yeah well that's but that, that's because everybody yeah, that's people, a new i mean that's really a new phenomenon people put the, the, people put their brunch on blast yeah <laughs> yeah these days it's all we're in the city for that man yeah all artists start with a reference point that's right yeah. and it's something that they like and respect and the true artists are ones that evolve what they started with mm-hmm. emulating somebody else's artwork and turning it into their own style. Every, yes. Everyone. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's the, that is the, that is yeah, the, there's no such thing yeah. as something completely original. No, no, no. Yeah. Everyone I know has done it and, and probably still does it to a point, you know, like, but you hide it really well in what you're doing. Yeah. That, that's, that's the key to, to, you know, to, I guess, getting away with it, you know, right. but, or, or I think often what it is actually usually is, at least in my experience, because this exists in this exists in music, this exists in photography, this exists. I've even discovered this even in the drone videography and filmmaking world, or uh, certainly I have in music and all these things. But you know, there's there it, there definitely is. Uh, I think there's different reasons for people to get involved in things in the first place. I think there's different motivations that people have. I think that some people are really hell bent on just the actual. Uh, sanctity of the creative process and 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 really pursue it in sort of that kind of a, a way without without necessarily a bunch of vanity um Im- immediately introduced or they need to other things um or reflecting more broadly or blasting or you know it, there's something where it's just i'm just doing what it's a cultural thing or this is just what i do versus people that are looking for shine or looking for something that some feedback from the whatever um audience or universe or social media or whatever it is they they want to get something back and so they they want to go down proven uh air lines of well if this work is successful and people are responding to this then if i'm in that vein and maybe even just make a slight tweak then i can kind of be in that same light or, or something and you can't it, do the same thing forever though and that's exactly true artists always evolve the best yeah. i you know <clears throat> i get because i I curate shows and work with galleries and work with a lot of international street artists. And, you know, I I have clients that I buy art for. And when they're interested in buying street art, one of the first names that always comes up is Mr. Brainwash. Mm. So if you've seen, (laughs) if you've seen the movie exit through the gift shop, um, you know, Mr. Brainwash is a important part of that movie in sort of a twisted way. And most of the people in the street art world don't think very much of him because that movie was produced and came out in 2000 was produced beginning in about 2008 came out in 2010 and he's doing the exact same thing now that he was doing in 2010 taking pop culture images and basically drizzling paint on them Mm. right and it hasn't changed yeah so you know that's an example of somebody who was given a gift and hasn't done anything to move it forward yeah he's doing the exact same thing that he did 
you know, when Banksy handed him, handed him that opportunity. Well, it's back. like it's like he's stuck on a little island, and he hasn't even done the work or the training or the not evolution, evolutionary iterations to arrive at that. So for him to take, he doesn't have a, another stone to step on. No, he's not an artist, yeah. you know, and that's that's the joke. You know, at the end of Exit Through the Gift Shop, and you're going through the credits, the funny thing is he was hired to do the cover art for Madonna's Greatest Hits album. Mm. You know, and you still see him. There was a developer in, in uh, Brooklyn that paid him, you know, $500,000 to do a mural on the side of a what? new condo complex. And, you know, oh. the real artists in the street art and graffiti genre look at it and shake their heads. It's like, how does that still happen? We thought that that joke, you know, that punchline would have ended and faded away, you know, by but, 2000. But- Twelve, yeah. Well, the so, hit was so obvious at the end of that <laughs> film. The whole film, it was obvious. It's like yeah. it wasn't hidden in like subtext or anything. It's like this is what yeah. We I can mean, turn we can turn somebody into a successful artist just with a little bit of staging. You know that was the whole point yeah, of, of that. But I mean, yeah. even when so they did good. that, I had seen it before. I, now I can't recall because the the hate didn't stay in my mind too long. Man, the positive stuff does, but. Uh, uh, but <laughs> I, I do I recall I recall people before doing that and people still do it well sort of but there's people that play into not not to not to sip on the hatred too much here but people do play into mass appeal and they and with street art and things you can not mimic someone but you can you can play the game in a way where it's almost hard to turn you down because your mass appeal is so high and it's easy and it sells and you make good money doing it. Why not do it? I get it. I respect it, but I'm, I don't know. The way I was raised is like, it takes a long time to get really good at something to master something, you know, like I think my dad mastered teaching. He was a physics teacher. He had doctors, physicists engineers like send him christmas cards and thank you letters for like 20 years after they had him as a teacher he changed them i guess like mm. he he made them interested in science and they went on a pursuit a scientific career and ended up being a way higher position in the science field than my father ever was but, but your dad was the sensei right he, yeah, yeah. He, he was like the catalyst that like you know that, that flipped a switch in their head that science was rad you know uh i figured i was getting with that but <laughs> it had something to do with Mr. Brainwash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, people mass appeal thing. You know, I get it. Yeah. Like they don't, it, it's not like you're working 15 years to develop this kind of style that's. See, I mean, I, you know. I, like I've talked to you about earlier, I mean, I've run into some of these things. Even, man, I have run into some of these things. And it is really unnerving when, when. Like with, with, so with drones, it's it's a new medium. There's not a lot of established visual language with it, other than the immediate conventions that people have already arrived. With. This is for aerial footage or for establishing shots, and it's a great tool for that. It's way cheaper than a helicopter. You can do some pretty cool stuff to set up, you know, the story or or whatever. But what nobody had done was just really. I hadn't. I everywhere I looked, I didn't see anything that was really uh, treating this new medium as uh, something very special that's happening in this time. And what are the other endless amounts of things you might be able to do with this, or things that seem antithetical? Or it was like Brian Eno said once. You know, it was something about like whatever a new machine or technology, whatever its 
whatever its failure is will become the source uh, i'm paraphrasing but basically said whatever its fault is or wherever it bugs out or wherever it has a it has a problem or a shortcoming that is going to become what is in fact its signature um trait or characteristic so you can you can think about just like any new technology that's come along each one has like its intended use and then there's these weird sort of uh, augmented or other uses of it that amount to down the road how people actually just first thought think of that medium as, yeah. as opposed to you know and so I think about flying camera like holy shit I mean so so I went back to like the night you know all, I've studied all this you know and appreciated and loved all this mid-century you know sort of uh, photography that was coming up in the time of the abstract expressionists and I was like man so what would what would Harry Callahan or what would some of these guys done? What would Ouija have done with with a drone? You know, because when a, when the camera first came out, it was for family portraits. Then somebody was like, "Oh, we can do a landscape." Oh, then somebody just oh, we can do an abstract, and then it kind of went from there. Nobody thinks of a camera as solely for like a you know taking family portraits anymore or whatever. So the big now, di- the big difference, especially with drones, and why I respect what you do with your drone work is. Most videos, most drone videos I see, people are trying to showcase the fact that the cameras, that it's a drone video. Right. right. Rather than looking at this as just a tool and focusing on the storytelling and not working hard to get the audience or the person looking at it to go, Oh, that's a drone video. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, totally. It's like it's like when you're when you're a teenager and you're partying with your friends, everybody's like sort of it's for whatever reason it's presumed um, athletic competition to. <laughs> it's like how many shots did you do last night, or like whatever this you know that kind of predisposition to making immediately drinking a competitive thing that you then sort of posture about the next day and all this it makes you rely on it when you're out of college. <laughs> <laughs> but you know there's a there's some point where you realize like wait this doesn't have to be a competition we can just hang out. <laughs> yeah, that's how but, I feel about it. I yeah. want I want to be everybody's friend. Yeah, that's Especially right. with, with painting like yeah. Even the show saying earlier and you know I'm not talking shit. I'm just just speaking my mind and and uh, relating what I'm observing in the world. You know, but I don't care what your style is. I want to meet you and hang out because. I went so long without meeting any artists, like forever. Mm. And I mean, art was just my thing, always has been my thing. And just like, I've always enjoyed it, I've always done it, and I'm always going to do it. If shit hits the fan and social media crashes for a fucking reason and it's just gone off the face of the earth, I'm still going to be grinding and yeah. getting better and seeking out other art so that I can be inspired to up my game more. Mm. You know, like if I quit making money right now, little money that I make. If I quit that as a profession with art, I would still do it. I find another thing to do for money, mm. but I would spend every night and every weekend painting and drawing. Still. So it seems like you've kind of identified in your mind there, not to say that there's an end or some sort of finish line, but just to say that it seems like you've got a hustle on for a particular plateau or a particular place that you can sort of get on another level of a continuum with your work. But so I'm not saying I'm not suggesting that you. I hear you saying that as like this is like I've made it. Like I think that's such a no, 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 overly no. binary, silly like making. What the fuck is making well, it or whatever? But, it's but I guess what I'm saying is like I'm he- but I'm hearing you say um, that how much you are aspiring and hustling and 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 how pure that that is for you. 
so what how what is your north star or like what is the thing what's making it not but here's the thing i, I i'm trying not to make sure it sounds like it's not i don't want to oversimplify there's it. a whole doc about that it's fucking brilliant called making it oh really yeah it's it's amazing it's about like the fine arts and stuff it's so uh, good okay but it's this kind of the question they ask it's like you know the guy that wrote it or directing he's also like an illustrator he's like well what is making it and i have uh, a bunch of friends in this business who are making a good living and they all have different answers making it i don't know for me is not making a living off of it but hiking hiking uh i don't know ascending to the plateau that i feel others that i admire and that i i look at are near or on you know uh i guess the same publications of that that give them you know a platform and the galleries that they're in but that's it all seems so trivial because it doesn't really matter like what gallery you're in even but you know i'm lucky because i've gotten to know and work with a lot of the really the top street and graffiti artists around the world people that i admire (laughs) and people that i think most people would say they've made it but they don't see it that way right you know, to yeah. them, there's another plateau. Yeah. You know, it, a lot of them right now, the ones that have made it, are looking at it, and it's like, I want to be known as more than just a street or graffiti artist. I want to be known as a fine artist. I want to be known as a top contemporary artist. How do I do that? How do I move? So the whole, I think if you're a real artist, you never look at yourself and say, I've made it. Yeah. They, it never happens. They, they will. They, they, this, well, that's my point. That's what I'm going to say. So it's an internal so, thing. But here's the thing is like the people that you're talking about, you know, like that would be, that would probably be in, including people like Banksy or like, right. I mean, people that are trying, certainly not satisfied or don't want to be known. They're, they're into the idea of surprise and, and certainly evolving and all these other sort of characteristics. But, but don't they know that, don't you think that they know that in the broader history, like in a hundred years, that's going to be looked back on as like, oh, that was the. I think they know that. Yeah, and I think they feel so, so that. So really, they want but that they're more not now. Satisfied yeah. with where they are right now, they don't feel yeah. like they look at, you know, the the past art movements, the pop art movement, or mm-hmm. you know, the minimalist movement or the surrealist movement, and they see those guys in, you know, top museums. Mm-hmm. You know, and big private art collections and things like that. Don't you think this will happen, though? Oh, sure. It'll, uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There's Just no not doubt soon enough. It. <laughs> yeah, yes, I mean, this... it goes through everything, you know, until, yeah. you know, the thing is, we jo- I joke about it with a lot of these artists. It's like, when you're dead, you'll have made it. But until then, there are very few artists that achieve that made it status. There's only so many Mr. Alive. Brainwashes. Um, <clears throat> he's made it about his. I shouldn't say anything. I'll get, <laughs> I'll, I'll get a phone call. Sorry, I, I shouldn't have even try to con- conflate these things. But I'll, carry on. Yeah. No, I'll get a phone call if I say anything more. But, you know, but it's, you know, that's, it's, that's a way we can find out if anybody listened this far in. I, I do think that this contemporary street art, urban art, muralism, or muralism 2.0, truly is the Mexicans that started Mexico artists started muralism as far as i know is like the history thing it's like well actually graffiti and and in in you know in pompey Uh in ancient rome yeah graffiti was not only legal it was encouraged Mm -hmm. you know so my thing is and and one of the reasons that you know i quit a really nice 
regular job to work with street artists and graffiti artists is I think it's the most important art movement ever, ever period. Mm. Mm. Every other art movement before street art and graffiti was regionally based. French impressionism came from France. The pop art movement was New York based, right? And you can go through every art movement and it started in a A specific geographic area Mm. by a few artists and grew from there. Street art and graffiti are, the only art movements that literally in a short period of time appeared in every major city around the world. So it's, it's a, it's the universal made visual. Yeah. And you know, the whole idea behind this movement, every other art movement before this was intensely private. It was an artist going into their private studio, laboring away at paintings and then giving them to an art dealer or a gallery. And most people are intimidated going into a gallery. Somebody follows you around and it's like, you wonder they're they're thinking do i have enough money to buy anything here am i going to buy anything here and it's an intimidating experience this is a whole legion of artists in a brand new brand new being relative the street art graffiti movement the graffiti movement goes back to the you know to the 60s or 70s um this is the first art movement where the artists have said, we don't make, this isn't a private thing. We're going to put it out there. You can watch us paint. We're going to put our stuff up on buildings where you can look at it on your own time and make your own judgments without anybody looking over your shoulder yeah. or without you having to buy a painting from a gallery or buy a ticket from a venue that's showing art. So it's to me, it's the most important art so movement it's, it's, ever. Got it. So it's egalitarian, even at the point of entry or consumption. And and a, a few handful of these guys, mm, I might get struck down here by Zeus, man. But they're better than some of the masters, man. Like, yeah. Like even the Dutch, like Elmac. Like, holy shit! If, if you listen to this podcast, you're not familiar with graffiti and street art. Holler at me. I'll, I can. I could honestly teach a college course on this material. I mean, please, I'll maybe you can post it in the, the about section about my email with the syllabus. Yeah. Yeah. And like, well, just holler at me. You got any questions? You got anything references you need or places to go to start learning about this stuff. But Elmac, my Lanta, he is a master. He has his technique. He does like photorealism portraits only. He used to do graph back in the day, but then he did, I think he did portraits then too, but did it all like illegally on trains and stuff. But he has a technique where he he cools his cans off in coolers. Guido does this too, to, to lower the pressure even more. He only uses this thing called fat caps on his on his cans, and he has the way that those he, are the pieces that allow two cans of spray paint to connect nozzle to nozzle. No, that, that's, that's when Guido, Guido mixes paint. Guido mixes paint, but a lot of artists that do you know photorealistic stuff. Most people when they think of a spray can, if you've ever used a can of spray paint, you hit the nozzle, nozzle. and the paint just shoots out. If you lower the pressure, if you cool the cans off, the paint comes out a little slower, a little mistier. I that see. sort of thing. It's easier to control. Okay. This guy's technique is a circle with a dot in the middle, and it's like a pretty hard edge on... It's like a... Paint's like a cylinder with paints. Bizarre looking. And then he he patterns them with gradient and color and pressure of his finger to be the gradations of of tone within the skin tones and stuff. And when you zoom in close, it's like nonsense design. It's like it's design. It's not like shading. It's like just very kind of hard edged design. You back away. It's like, you know, it's like a Chuck close painting, but the technique is just 
bonkers bonkers like it's alien how he thought of that shit and then how he can make these lines in a way that's like they're so wide that makes this beautifully rendered portrait it's beyond me and it's a master craft that's what it's it's a little disturbing to me that the people that are the you know so-called experts in the contemporary art world dismiss street art and graffiti because it's done with spray paint or it's done on walls and they don't consider it real art you know well you know they can do that large-scale thing in three to four days so it doesn't take them three months to do a painting so it somehow that doesn't it's not legitimate because they didn't spend three months toiling in a studio somewhere and to me it speaks to the skill that these artists have the fact that can you know, you look at the painting that Bo Stanton just did for us in downtown Nashville. Incredibly detailed. Beautiful painting with a message behind it. 70-some feet tall and 70-some feet wide that he did on a, you know, in the basket of a boom lift out in the elements. And if somebody tells me he's not a real artist or a fine artist because he uses spray paint and he paints on a lift, that's crazy to me. Well, I think also the... I, for me, the thing that's particularly striking is to think about the the temporal nature of the the medium itself. So, to I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is like the so Bo Stanton's painting this mural. It's essentially above um, a boutique, and it's essentially the boutique is on the street level, one floor, and then it's like about second floor to about an eight floor ninth floor sort of story space really wide of a parking garage yeah and and uh i mean everybody's driven everybody has driven down through an old downtown and looked at what once was the old mural for the westinghouse logo or the coca-cola ad or whatever it was or just the drugstore the place where you are everybody's seen the the very vague facsimile of what was once there you know that must have at one time been painted purely beautifully cleanly readable from a distance all that great stuff pure signage in that that way but functional so these kind of pieces like what bo's doing is obviously is still larger in scale than say like a a, a sign that you would sort of see old time be on the side of a building but these what is it about how do you how like for me if i'm creating something onto a medium that I know will only last for a certain period of time. Especially, as you say, Brian, like if, if a lot of these premier artists, and, and Bo Stanton is certainly one of those, you know, where they, they have more they want to achieve and they want to be in the fine art realm right now, not after they're dead. They want to be exploring more and have more avenues and do more things and they're very talented and all this. So what is it for somebody like Bo Stanton to sort of be like, well... I have no control over this building or what's going to happen. You know, you can only paint to last for so much, you know, at best that mural stays there for 60 years or something. So that's not, um, a paint, a canvas that's going to go get into, um, some sort of humidity controlled climate controlled, uh, sort of mausoleum for art or whatever you want to call like a lot of these, you know, fine art museums, but really great stuff too. Like, you know, actually poetic, man. <laughs> So, so I guess I'm just like, I want that has to affect the creative process in some way, but even further, should it affect the process? Because we're all just mortal. This is all ultimately temporary. The sun's going to dry out or the sun's going to stop burning out 
and be done and become a neutron star, suck us in, and then we're going to be the, a black I, hole. So nothing matters anyway. Well, most of the, most of the <laughs> artists will expand and won't get into a black hole. It's not big enough. Uh, by the way, if you haven't seen the Nihilist Arby's Twitter feed, please go check it out. It's yeah, my favorite. My it's my favorite thing on yeah. Twitter. But anyway, go ahead. No, it's, you know, um, it doesn't bother the artists at all. You know, and it's funny because I have the discussion with them based, you know, this based on the movie that I did that's on Netflix right now, which is all about appreciating, protecting and preserving this art form, you know, and the artist will tell you, oh, it's not supposed to stay up. It's temporary. And to me, a lot of that is rationalization. You know, that's, yeah, this is getting to the stuff I'm curious it's about. Like, yeah. You know, most of the guys that had been in the game for a long time until about 2008, 2010. They weren't getting legal murals. People weren't commissioning to do things. Everything they did was go up and do it illegally, knowing that it was going to be painted over or, you know, taken away at some point. And so to them, in their mind, it was, well, it's a temporary art form. And things outside, they're never going to last forever. I don't care if it's a bronze sculpture. It might take 2,000 years for a bronze sculpture to go away. But anything outdoors at some point is going to go away. And that doesn't even enter into their minds. They, they want it to stay up as long as it can. And if that's one day or a hundred years to them, either way is fine. I wonder if virtual virtual reality, augmented reality, a lot of these things that are happening right now. I wonder well, they, if they I wonder if something s- like could be captured in such a way that it could be re-experienced in a fully spatially accurate n- way. It's never going to be the same as seeing it in person. Well, but at the but same you don't time, know that. But it, yeah. <laughs> But at the same time, this is going to happen. At the, at the same time, <laughs> what really, you know, there were a couple of things that really launched street art and graffiti in popular culture. But one of the, you know, primary factors is just social media. Mm. You know, so when Banksy would do something and it was shared five million times on social media, people saw it. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, the street artists are, you know, they're what they'll tell you is, if it gets painted over tomorrow, as long as I got the photos, yeah. I don't care. That's how I feel about it. And every piece I do, Pixar didn't happen. I put my thousand percent into it, like it's a studio piece. Like I don't care how long it's going to be up or who sees it or whatever. But if my name is going on it, I'm going to do everything in my ability to do it as best as I can. Yeah, I mean, even if it were, if you, even if you were like, this is going to be up for a year because this paint is really shitty or whatever. That's not how I think about it. Yeah, it's just it's like, like you're going to put it down. How can I do this yeah. the best that I can that represents what I want to represent to, my, to my best ability? It's almost liberating Ugh. as opposed to having something cryogenically preserved for all oh. eternity in every exact way. You know, just to sort that, of be like to be, to be at least be aligned with the fleeting temporal nature of everything. Yeah, well, that's just kind of like what Brian was saying. It's like I grew up doing graffiti. You know, when I grew up, I was like 19 when I started but, you know, a lot of places that I did it weren't, I wouldn't get any street cred doing it. It was like on my college campus and I was just like getting better at it in these like tunnels and stuff. And then like a sorority would come by and buff the fuck out of me. <laughs> and then I would go and hit, hit the sororities thing, you know, like, like we have a winter ball in the 18th. You should, defi- you should you know? define buff, I think. Oh, yeah, I'll let Buff Daddy do it. Yeah. Oh, Buff yeah. Daddy. So, so buffing is just the process of prepping a wall or painting over something so it's a clean campus. So you're for... saying you had sororities prepping your walls? What is The this? tri-delts are big into buffing. <laughs> yeah. yeah just, they, would, they would like paint the whole tunnel and then like put their message on it. So they would like buff every artist in town who had a piece on this wall. 
and they would like come in all 30 deep and they would like roll it and then they would put like their winter ball date and time and everything on it and what to wear as it's like very, it's advertising it's a very niche street art culture the sorority they would be huge now if they were still doing that in public they would get huge i know it. a bunch of like blonde delts out there rolling a wall together nice yeah even in a tunnel yeah i've always personally been a big fan of the art of the sigma kappas Mm. they got a clean hand style I don't get the joke, but I bet it's great. <laughs> I don't get it either. It's all right. I'm uh, with you. All right. Half the room. You got half You got half the room with that one. Jeez. What, can you explain? College boys. Jeez. No, it's like a sorority, so I'm just... Oh, I see. Yeah. There's nothing I, specific about that type no, of... No, and I played it with like a, a, a graffiti sorority. term, hand style, yeah. you know, like tagging. Okay. Yeah. All My right. sense of humor is really terrible. It's Most pretty, people pretty don't fucking niche, man. Awesome. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, tell it's me bad when you have to explain your jokes, right? <laughs> That's what mom always says, man. Yeah, but but at least, um, but at least I was, I was perfectly, I was ready, willing, able. I was, I was like, okay, I don't get the joke, but I'm open. Now you do. Yeah, pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, I got I was, that joke killed. That was <laughs> awesome. Speaking of good jokes. Brian, Brian loved this one. Don't tell this joke. joke. We were in the car this morning, dude. I almost opened the door and jumped out because I it was so funny to me. I got so many good dad jokes, but I'll let them be for now. What is, what is this? What happened it's this morning? A waste of two minutes of podcast time. Yeah, yeah. It's this fine. It's, this shit is digital. Go he's ahead. Got, he's got good jokes. Can edit. You can jokes. you can edit it out. <laughs> no, I'm not. Yeah. Talking, the, I, after I said there is no ahead. editing here. What are Go the nuts? What are the nuts? I could say? edit it, but I will not. What did the nut say to the nut it was chasing? What's that? I'm a cashew. Cashew. <laughs> I told I warned you. You're laughing. <laughs> How can you laugh at that but not laugh at, laugh at my sorority street art I think, joke? I think that when you... I think that... Because I was never a... Uh, there's three things I don't know. Fraternities, sororities, or Greek. So whenever I hear any of that stuff, I don't... It becomes quickly sort of another... Yeah, you went to Lee's McCray, man. That's uh, why. No, I got kicked out of Lee's McCray. Oh, uh, you went to Abby would have known about that. Yeah, I got kicked out of college my first year of college. Everybody should know this. But you, too, can also fail out of your first year of college and hope that in the next 30 years you might be able to have a podcast. Shit, man. Because it's I, so hard to have a podcast. No, but any, uh, any advice that I would give now I got, I, to I, youngsters I, is find a trade don't go to four year school stay the fuck away yeah. from it yeah i yeah. i think generally you're, you're right i mean if you have something you want to get a specific certification no, for engineering physics teaching you yes. want to be a lawyer then do that thing. Doctor. doctor yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i mean being being creative you don't need to go to yeah four if you're going to become creative. a doctor we would all prefer that you not just wing it and <laughs> like liberal arts uh oh. style and then bring your sort of your 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 love of Syrian fiction or something. And then, uh, I think the bureaucratic fist of death would get you before you got to be a doctor with that, man. Yeah. All the paperwork. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I got kicked out of Lee's McCray college and banned from the campus. And I, I'm proud of that. I, I really it's a beautiful am. town though. It, it is a beautiful town. It's a beautiful mafia town is what it is. Banner Elk, North Carolina. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, or yeah. beach mountains. Banner Elk, Banner Elk is mafia. How did I not know this? I spent okay, so I spent six long years in undergrad. Yeah. down the road from where he's talking about. Yeah, and how sober were you during that six-year period of time, or aware of your surroundings at all? 
I love the mountains. <laughs> you were in the outdoors. <laughs> I'm not saying the mafia is like out on the hiking trails. <laughs> I, I guess I'm not saying point. like I'm not saying like when you're snowboarding at 2 p.m. on an, a Tuesday because you have a season pass. <laughs> I took the glass. That, that like you're gonna nudge up against a, a a mafioso on the way to the lift line. How do you know about this? What happened? Like I can't, the, I can't give you any. Okay, I'll tell you this. There's, oh, there's oh, an airstrip there. Story. Did you know there's an airstrip there? No, in Banner or in like Banner Elk. In Banner Elk, there is an airstrip, and there is uh, um, one, and I mean airstrip, like not. It's just a runway f- for one plane at a time style, small, but you know, small airport. And I will tell you that I have, I have taken off and landed in a plane in this airport, of which I don't remember the name. And I can assure you that just by the vague things that I've given you, that I know totally what I'm talking about and that there's mafia there. Understood. Because there's an airstrip and because I said so. Right. And if you have any other doubts or, or things, we can get into that. But I I'm mean, convinced. No, yeah. I don't. No, I'm, I'm just, I didn't know that. And it's like, I, I met Doc Watson up there. Yeah. And so, that's, so I thought I was the bomb, man. You know, you were, like, you I don't were, know shit. You were out there getting the best of American music. I was I was there getting kicked out of places, banned, and flown in and out of secret airports. That's fucking rad. No big deal. I know. Oh, in so Banner Elk. No, I, I basically got kicked out for alcohol violations because it was because <laughs> it was a dry county. It's a Christian school, wasn't it? It's a, well, it doesn't matter. It's a dry county. Oh, it used to be. It, yeah, it, well, this, yeah, in the fifties when I was there. No, I was there in nineteen ninety. Yeah, no, it, it when. It was in Otago County. Regardless, my my town was dry, and then when I was in school, they served liquor by the drink for the first time. The whole town went ham. I bet it, it was amazing to go out in downtown Boone when the first liquor shot in history was served in the bars there. It was fucking mayhem. <laughs> Boone. Yeah, I mean, look, I was up in the sticks in Banner Elk, where all the mafia are. That's so, amazing. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I had a disciplinary hearing and I went a little crazy and then um and then I got banned from like a certain distance of the actual campus. I didn't physically hurt anybody, but you can see I'm a pretty imposing figure, and so people just logically get f- fearful. That's why it's called Fight Club. It's fight art, art version. <laughs> yeah. When, uh, when do we fight? <laughs> <laughs> so well, actually, like on the fight front, I guess that's one of the things I want kind of. I'm not coming in here with canned questions, but I was thinking about like sort of stuff I wanted to kind of just put you guys on the spot for, which I guess is sort of like canned questions. Shoot. But basically, I was curious, like, okay, we're in a weird fucking time in our culture, politics, everything right now is pretty insane. And by anybody's standard uh, or point of view, really. Concurred. Right? So... Uh, so when it comes to street art and, and murals and all that, and, and your convictions as in terms of people that are purveying a lot of this work, like, do you feel, how do you, I know that it's, I don't want to be on a team. Nobody wants to be on a team. It's not about fighting for a team, but in these times, how are you relating, you know, that to the work that you're doing? And do you feel like your work is at least even in some sort of a, a metaphysical kind of way or in a sort of third degree of correlation, like that you are creating things to put good in the world or whether you actually have a, a distinct message. 
or whether there's certain things that you want to sort of uh, combat that are in the broader culture? Like, where does that, where does all that sort of, uh, you know, sort of antagonism, if there's any, exist for you guys? Do you want me to go? I'm yeah. not very, I'm not very deep. I mean, seriously, you know, I try not to. I was in the TV business for 33 years and had to deal with news and that sort of thing. And when I left that in the end of 2013, I unplugged from all that stuff. So if the artist has a message, that's cool. My job is only to facilitate, get them the wall, get the them voice. the opportunity, get them, you know, mm-hmm. make sure they get paid, that sort of thing. You know, uh, but from my perspective, it's just simply, I think murals are much better than a blank wall. And I want to fill as many walls up with murals as possible that's the extent of it there's nothing political there's no message there for me it's just and the world's better looking place and like i said before this is a really important art form so i'm going to do what i can to make sure that it gets to as many people and gets to as many places as possible with mine it's not it's not outright and it's not obvious and it's more a little more obvious than my studio work but it's not definitely not obvious at all with my, with my mural work, but I want people to be open to rethinking history. I think that is, in my opinion, which is super humble, and I don't know much because I spend a lot of time doing things like art and researching art and not reading other things I should be reading. But I think that the biggest issue with science now is archaeology and I think it's the most biased and um, how so well there have been numerous archaeologists across the world who have found out amazing things and then had indisputable proof behind it talking like uh, like not nucleotide there's something in the in the soil that is at one point this like little organic figure that's uh specific to the time that it was around and that could be that, that's known through this this uh time dating process mm-hmm. and it's more correct than carbon dating huh and there've been numerous archaeologists across the world who found out things that pushed humans back much much further oh so it totally changed the perspective or the baseline for kind of orientation for everything that we know right and okay. the only theory in science that i'm aware of for the most part is the archaeological one of civilization hasn't changed since its inception in like the late 1800s mm-hmm. it's pretty much the same story ever since it makes, a lot of evidence it makes sense found Got it. So it makes sense, though, like in the in the sense that we've only been even remotely modern for just a couple hundred years. And yeah, we've been so, we've been civilized for like our sensors know, and our ways of perceiving all these things, and then correlating all this information have been evolving extremely rapidly, even in the last couple hundred years. But even just that as a notion, beyond you know, because before that, it was just whatever, you know, 30,000-year-old cave paintings, you know, that are certainly significant. You know, like the first time that people decided to actually replicate or make a visual representation of something, that's a huge cognitive turn, so I'm not sort of negating that. But I guess I'm just saying, like, the last 200 years have been pretty much our our eyes. It's almost like we've just come out of a, a coma, 
and we're just sort of blinking our eyes and things are blurry and it's coming into sharpness right now. And that is what I see like the last 200 years as being there. Yeah. What? 115, 110 years. We went from the plane to having a probe outside of our solar system. Mm. And there's an author that says we're a species with amnesia. We don't, Mm. we don't recall our past. Like, you know, and if we, we went from gliding off at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina to, having whatever probe that is is outside of the solar system now and all kinds of crazy shit in space yeah and having cern get out of here you know and nuclear bombs you know and strike toothpaste and everything that we think is cool that is that is actually what else has come out of anything striped besides toothpaste too like that's it's a one that's a that's a huge innovation of all things I, i still don't get it yeah how do they do that because I would like to have, you know, why, okay, why is it? Why don't why don't they have a like a ketchup mayonnaise mustard one? Or I've seen that they, though. Yeah, they do. Okay, yeah, you can get do. like mustard and mayonnaise that squirts out. Yeah, but does it? But, does, but no. But like, does it all from the yes. from one bottle? Yes. Yeah. It just distributes all three. Yeah. In a perfect line, and it looks all clear. Like, the, and shit. like, like striped toothpaste. Yeah, to take it really? back, yeah. take it back to college for okay. a second. You just blew my mind. Uh, <laughs> I, I cleaned out one of those um, plumbing <laughs> containers that has two sections where it's like a liquid and a thing, two liquids that make a foam that like unclog your drain. Oh. Like liquid plumber, but it has two sections where they mix. It's like not combustible, but like they interact. It's combustible. Yeah. yeah. And so I cleaned that out fucking thoroughly and I made an apple teeny in it and I put... <laughs> <laughs> I put apple like schmucks over in one side and vodka the other. I took it to a party and people sip like a chaser and a vodka at the same time. Let's go to Shark Tank with that. People love it. Right. Keep making Shark Tank references. Yeah. Also, had an idea for a ketchup filled French fry. <laughs> there you go. That's genius. We should my, also- my idea, my million dollar idea, I came up with this this week working on the mural is NDA uh, to the public right now. Is I'm going to put cup holders in boom lifts. Because they don't have them, and I kept spilling my coffee. Yeah. Yeah, So boom lifts with cup holders is the next big thing. What about one that just has a a coffee apparatus built into it? When it turns on and starts bubbling coffee in the bottom and brewing coffee for you? That sounds like a good concept, but anybody that works in a boom lift knows that nothing in the basket ever works. There's (laughs) supposed to be electricity up there for like power drills and paint. Those never work. I don't know. So, it was supposed to work. I just had plugs there for the hell of it. How do you get good at driving one of those? How do you get like you just really suck at it at first and you it's really it. dangerous? <laughs> I'll tell you, you get it, you kind of freak out and you figure out how to get back down, man. I'm pretty good at driving a boom lift now and positioning it on the wall. Mm. The first time I ever drove a boom lift was we were doing that mural with five local artists in Printer's Alley in downtown Nashville, and we ordered a 60 foot boom lift. And the, they always call you an hour before they arrive at the lift. You have to be there when they deliver it and sign the papers that you got it, that sort of thing. And it's a super, super busy area. I get a call at 3 o'clock on a Friday saying the lift is going to be there in an hour. It's like one of the busiest parts of downtown Nashville on a Friday afternoon. Oh. Why are they delivering it now? They usually deliver them at like 8 o'clock in the morning. So I run to the area, this big, I mean, it's a big flatbed semi-truck. It's a full flatbed semi-truck with this boom lift on the back of it and the truck driver jumps out hands me the paperwork and he says i'm leaving it here i'm going because i'm gonna get a ticket and he literally i signed the papers 
he took the 60 foot boom lift off the back of that truck and left it on third Avenue. And that's when I thought I better learn how to drive this thing like really fast. (laughs) So I jumped up, fired it up, pulled it into the alley and got it out of the way. They're not that hard to operate once you get used to it. It's the intimidation of you drive it from like 20 feet up off the ground. You know, you got to put the basket up so you can see where you're going when you drive a boom lift. <laughs> and most people are just sitting, you know, in the car. So you're saying the first time you drove one, you, were, you <clears> weren't throat> even throat> planning throat> on driving it. No. And, and it was in a very busy area at the worst time possible. Rush hour. Downtown Nashville. Oh, my God. Yeah. So did you just, did you just do it very <clears throat> slowly? Is there a way to, like... Oh yeah, or you just just end up where you're just kind of driving around in a very low torque first I, I didn't gear, have to, just jerking everything yeah, around. I mean, uh, yeah, there. I mean, there are different settings. There's literally on a boom lift, it's rabbit mode and turtle mode, <laughs> and the the little icons in the basket are a rabbit and a turtle. And if you flip the switch to the rabbit, it goes faster. You flip the switch to the turtle, it goes slower, painfully slow. But that was just simply. I didn't have to drive it a long way. I had to drive it about twenty yards and pull it into this big wide alley and just get it out of, you know, get it off third Avenue. So I jumped on. It was kind of fun. Well, it was like most of these projects. It was terrifying. And then once you get it off the street and parked, then it was fun. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I can't believe I just (laughs) drove this boom lift. I got this guys. I've done this. Man, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's, there's so many things that you have to know how to do. And now I'm at the point, like when, we have a 150 foot boom lift here for Guido. It was like, I'm just going to drive that thing around. So I jump on it, you know, jump, literally jumped on it and just kind of drove just around to that, drive just it. to drive that thing. Well, that's around a big open lot. Yeah, yeah. Super easy area to yeah. get around and no, no, no power lines, no nothing. It was just open. It was, yeah. Well today, Brian, I was down the end of the wall where he and Buko were, um, working, they had the boom lift down there at the very end of the wall. And they're like, well, we need some water to wash out our brushes and get some water for the paint and all this. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll see you down there. And Who's this? This is Brian okay. and Buko. Okay. And then they didn't, they didn't move. Buko was sitting down drinking coffee in the basket, and Brian was <laughs> up at the controls. And I was like, you guys driving down there? <laughs> He's like, well, yeah. Turtle mode. So he... It was turtle mode, man. <laughs> I went down, got my lift, got up, started painting. They were still, like, coming down the lawn to get to the to it's because the it was really uneven but that was our, our big thing today was one of the panels in this 10 you know 10 artists each had a panel the one at the very end is you know one of my favorite nashville artists emily miller and she has a space and she does wheat paste so she did this big wheat paste elephant and painted like the lower part is blue and then the upper part is white but there were high voltage lines going from the poles into the side of the building and there's no reasonable way to buff that whole area out. And so John and I came up with a plan that worked because we're actually here talking to everybody yeah. to work around the power lines and get that all buffed out. But before we did that, we went to a coffee shop here in the nations to have coffee and breakfast just in case it was our last meal. We didn't want to <laughs> like go up and get electrocuted and then without having a full stomach yeah it was scary every time we got close to the blinds but you did it within feet and i wouldn't hear it go down i'd be listening to your podcast about my lift and not hear them get electrocuted and then come down there in two hours and there's crows picking at them and shit (laughs) 
You would have heard it. <laughs> yeah, right? You would have heard it. You would have felt the spray because someone would have got probably exploded. Man. Yeah, well, I, I would hate to see anything go down that is like that. I would not want to be around that. Tell them the story of the guy. What's uh, that? The guy. The, the demo team. Oh. So <clears throat> this building's an old warehouse. And the property owners, to their credit, want to make it as open and like a park as possible. And there used to be a big chain link fence with the three strands of barbed wire. You're talking top. about the Music City Tents yeah, warehouse? Yeah, the Music City Tents, the, the mural that we were, yeah. we were working on the past week. So they tore the barbed wire fence down. And there were these big yeah. HVAC units, four of them, monstrous HVAC units, right next to the wall in these concrete pads. And the building owner asked us, he said, do you want those taken out? I can have them taken out. Really? And, yeah, and because Jeez. they weren't in use, right? Oh, okay. They weren't. They could use them. They're functional, but it would cost so much to run those things in that part of the warehouse that it just didn't make any sense. So they'd been off, but they were functional. Yeah. So, and I've been through that warehouse. It's insane. It's massive. Yeah. It's huge. A hundred thousand square it's feet. It's a damn labyrinth of. Yeah. So they hired these guys to take out the HVAC units, and I'm up on the boom lift at like eight thirty on. Uh, I think it was Tuesday morning with Emily Miller helping her put her wheat paste up. And here comes these good old boys to take the HVAC units out. And the first thing they did was on the one right below the boom lift that I was on with Emily was this guy comes with these big bolt cutters and goes to cut the main power line. Right. Yeah. I think they just assumed that they were all off. Well, it wasn't off. He takes the bolt cutters and cuts this giant power because these are massive what HVAC units and he cuts that power line and there was a explosion and sparks and smoke and it blew him back five feet from where oh my god no. and he bounces right back up and he's like i guess that was still on wow. and so after so <laughs> power, power <laughs> so power wasn't an issue anymore so they proceeded to <laughs> Beat this HVAC unit with an axe to go for it, tear it out. And the last three they took down too. And and, and then the the other thing that was amazing on all so the other so there There's were multiple four, units though. Oh, there were four of them. Yeah. So in the first one the power was on. So they did make sure that on the last three the power wasn't on. Okay. I mean, you're talking a lot of power going to these massive units, but on all four of them. There's a Freon compressor, and these are industrial size, warehouse size HVAC units. And their way to deal with the Freon compressor was to beat it with an axe. And they would warn all the artists, you want to, might want to move back for a little bit. <laughs> oh, God. And then they would hit that. You saw them, right? Oh, I got moved back twice. So you thought they were just going to come in and have some sort of like... We're I thought they were going to come in with the crane, it. unbolt it, and yeah. put it in a flatbed truck and take it away. No, they, they after they would, <laughs> they, would, they would beat it into small sections <laughs> with an axe and throw it into the back of a pickup truck. <laughs> but then they would, they'd hit these Freon units, and there was a massive cloud of Freon. And we're all surprised painting murals this time of year, right? That the weather can be tri- tri- tricky here. Yeah. But it's been so warm this week. And my reasoning for it being so warm was they released so much Freon into the atmosphere <laughs> that it raised the temperature here by 15 degrees. And helping the shade. That is nuts. And it, did- was inter- it was so oh, man. entertaining to watch these guys mm-hmm. dismantle oh, these giant industrial size 
HGAC like they were murdering it with axes. <laughs> that's that's the beauty of you know the work in the street is. It's that, also a testament to the axe. This yes, it is the stuff you see, man. It it's better than what the work you do is, in my opinion. Usually for me, anyway, like the experience, the people that you meet, the shit you see. Well, yeah, like if you were just like, doing anything, if you just decided like, okay, I'm gonna go, <clears throat> I'm gonna go stand out on this side street area i'm gonna stand here every day for 10 hours oh man when i was yeah. in the gulch doing the whiskey kitchen mural for google i was 25 feet up on this thing and like no one recognized me up there they didn't even look at me and it's, it's the gulch you know so it's people that don't know about the gulch it's kind of like a trendy it's like atlanta blew up inside a like came out of a pore of nashville's face it's interesting <laughs> down there Bunch of, it's a great analogy. I like that. Bunch of young. Well, here's rich the, it's just because it was it was actually just a, a kind of a barren industrial part of town, yeah. and so it's great that like things are there now as opposed to sort of nothing except for uh, obviously the station is there, and that's kind of a strange thing. It's an old, beautiful, old venue that that's kind of very humble with all this kind of new sheen all around it. it used but to be I'm, an old rail yard. Now it's like yeah. the hip spot. And yeah, but, I'm not hating on the gulch. No, but, I guess I was just clarifying. It's like yeah. every. It's just wild because it's one of those parts of town where it's not like all oh, this kind of got re like upgraded or something. This was gentrification of of there was nothing, and yeah. then now there's a, a micro city. Yes, there. it's yeah. definitely micro city. Yeah, but the stuff. I mean, I've I used to go out with when I was living in San Francisco. I used to go out the local street artists, and everybody put their stuff up Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night because it was the lower traffic nights. And the stuff that you would see, you know, it was always Hugh Lehman, one of my favorite people in the world, is a street artist in, in San Francisco, and I went out with Hugh. And he would always start at one o'clock in the morning on Sunday, Sunday night, Monday morning, right? And we'd go out and if you were lucky, you got a code to get into a building and get up on the roof and uh. you'd be, or we'd scale fire escapes and get up to places and, you know, put up wheat paste posters or do, you know, quick paintings, that sort of thing. And the stuff that you see, I mean, we saw some bizarre things that time of night in the yeah. Tenderloin in San Francisco up on rooftops, you know, where you're sort of or, invisible. Yeah. I mean, most you, but people, you're, people hidden in plain sight. It. Yeah. <clears throat> and the, the stuff that you see is, it's pretty bizarre. And we've seen stuff here, Chris was talking about the Gulch. We we're painting the uh, Jason Woodside, Ian Ross murals in the Gulch. And a lot of these artists, when they go into a city, they're put into a part of town that, needs gentrification, right? They're putting in the rough part of town to do murals to kind of help transition neighborhoods. And so they were in the gulch and, uh, and uh, I can't remember if it was Jason or Ian was like, we're not used to painting in nice places like this. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And at one o'clock, I think it was the third day we're painting. All of a sudden we hear gunshots in the gulch, <laughs> oh, right? Some guy had pull, pulled into the parking lot daytime, half a block during the middle of the day. Pulled in the parking lot a half a block away from where the murals are, and stuck his uh, stuck his nine millimeter out his car window and just emptied the magazine into the air. And like a, like a, like a respectful salute. I don't don't know what uh, there was, were lots of <laughs> there were lots of nicely dressed people running. Oh man! You know, away from this gunfire down on you know Eleventh Avenue. Right, like it wouldn't have been any, any different in the middle of a Nordstrom as it was where you were. No. 
No, there's yoga studios and coffee shops and organic sandwich places and you name it. And gunfire. All, all new. This is it's like what, I mean, back to my boy Dojo who came by and hung out with me at the uh, barista wall. Told him about that story. He was like, man, hey, ain't nowhere like safe. Yeah, like, yeah. It's like this state of mind that people want to be in that like this area is like immune to shit going on. And they like, desperately want to assign it to some otherness that they already perceive in their lives because they're already halfway xenophobic anyway. Yes. So let's assign that to some other X. race or some other qualification. Neighborhood that, yeah. that, that isn't like ours. Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> no, nah, it's, it's, it's almost like a, a, a really crude implement of our fight or flight instinct or something. Just be like, well, that's their problem. Well, that's what they pay some much money for i mean i guess is like to not just be cool but to also have like the illusion of being safe yeah know? it's the modern gated gated community please yeah, yeah that, sh- that shit's everywhere man like yeah. i'm not saying violence and like murder is everywhere it kind of I mean it is for yeah. sure we're, we're living in a very safe time and historically speaking so how's but, that how's that like with with respect to street art i mean like kind of like what you said like you know usually guys are you know and girls are women everyone is painting uh, in areas that are more, whatever, are not as not as evolved or rough around the edges or however you want to put it, you know, not desirable to the modern idiom of what is considered desirable. Um, in in that case, you know, it's do, do you sometimes feel disembodied where street art is right now because it is happening in places like the Gulch and it is happening in places. Well, I think where most it, of, most of the artists, you know, there are artists. Heracut's a good example, you know, and I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, you know, Jasmine and Falk, who are the duo that make up Heracut. They paint in, you know, talking to Jasmine when she was here about where she'd painted, they'd painted in Nepal, yeah, in Jordan, in places like that. And at the same time, painting in Paris and Rome and New York. So it's kind of, you know, wherever the most interesting canvas is, that's where, the, where they'll go. You know, if it's a good wall, it's amazing to me when we reach out to an artist, you know, an international artist, if it's a good wall, a big wall that a lot of people are going to see, it can be in the Gulch, it can be in the Nations, it can be in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, it doesn't matter to them. Well, I appreciate too how you you sort of always, your instinct is to always take it to, this is, these are just uh, coordinates that are a a part of a much broader conversation and there's something conversational about street art and there's something that's imminent and universal about street art. And this is very counter to sort of the sort of uh, isolation or exclusivity of the rest of the art world. It seems like these things are always just going to be at some sort of weird odds. And I don't know, like, I, I want everybody to be a part of everything and just feel it won't like be, it should just it won't be forever. Yeah. Somebody I just got interviewed by one of the street art you know, online services. I think it was street art United States or something like that. They wanted to know about the term sellout, you know, are people sellouts? Um, and you hear that all the time, right? Oh, well, you know, Banksy's a sellout or shepherd Ferry's a sellout. And I had a conversation at one point about that with a very well-known international street art. And his response was the people that say that you're selling out are the ones that aren't making any money yet. Mm. So I don't, you know, it's not at odds with anything. It's, you know, it just is. It just is what it is. Yeah, it's also the paintings so, go where they go. The artists are successful for being successful. That sort of thing. Yeah. It's still so new. Like, relatively speaking, the movement is not old. 
you know, and like especially with the street art, like even like the post graffiti scene. It's like what you're looking at. No, what would that be considered post graffiti? I guess like when it, when it went to street art, whereas like but like when was that? Like or... I think like you know mid early mid nineties okay ish areas where like saw things that going up that weren't just like names. You know, it was like not immediately self characters declaration and, of just uh, like whatever I was here type of vibe and this is my territory right which which evolved heavily mm-hmm. quickly mm-hmm. like in New York it was going from like these really like uh, basic manuscript hand tags like Taki one seventy three I think was his name mm-hmm. and and like cornbread when he was in um, Philadelphia he had more of a hand style though if my memory serves but it evolved to like there was like wild style and burners and shit by like the you know, the early 80s, it took like six years before tagging went to like this crazy abstract, multicolored, dimensional, like shaded. So it was, it was a flame from the get go, essentially. Right. And yeah. then from that, you know, people who, you know, I guess it's kind of my sort of generation, but, you know, older than me, but that grew up with comics more and was like, well, they like figurative things like these like kind of graphic characters, which were in the graph scene, too. But like. It started coming out, and then I got really into it in 2003. Um, I was a high school senior and a college freshman. And then the Br- Brazil scene was what blew me open. It's like the street art in Brazil is like I'd never seen so many characters. I bought a book from like it's called like Graffiti Brazil or something like that. And it was like a lot of characters and stuff down there. I've never seen anything like it. And that's like, you can do this. Yeah. So I started doing it. Yeah. Like we were saying before, it's like you emulate things, not and you, like and copying it. But your stuff yeah. is very distinct because it's it's these sort of um, uh, technological alien forms, for lack of a better way of expressing it. Correct. Um, so, like you know, I would be amiss to sort of just not say, well, "Hey, what what the fuck is that about, man?" No, what what what, what is like? Good question. What is that about, man? Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> Well, I was talking about before with like history. It's not that I think that <clears throat> aliens gave us civilization or anything like that. It's a fictional take on what I what I do seem to know about archaeology and things is that our history is not so black and white and how we've been <clears throat> schooled into thinking that it was. So history origins are really important to you in all the things you've talked about. Pre- That's one thing I've kind of noticed. For sure, yeah. And especially pre origin. Like it's it's just it's so fascinating to think about that if civilization is, I don't know, twice as old as we think it is, it's, it's 20,000 years, not 10,000 years. Like, so we see what happened in 10,000 years. Why not have that happen before then too? Because it, it didn't take that long, you know, from, you know, the iron age to having Mars rovers wasn't that long. It's like what? 500 years, you know, not yeah. shit in the, in the blip of like, even, even what we have now for 8,000 years. Of you know recorded history more or less go Beckley Tempe and yeah Turkey disproves that a little bit but that could have happened even back then in isolation mm. you it, it takes no time for us to do this you know it's like so why do is, you yeah. believe that there were uh, civilizations once as us before that have not been agreed to historically or acknowledged I would like to think so. And I think that the folks that made certain things on this earth were on one. Like, the Sphinx, I'll make it short, but the Sphinx has been proven 
to the U.S. Geological Nothing Society. Nothing short ever starts off with like, okay, I'm gonna make it short. The Sphinx. Well, this, 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 this is the Sphinx. This is the Sphinx. It's proven by National Ge- Geographic Society or Geological Society. Take your time. Yeah. Um, in like the late '90s, through Dr. Robert Shock, that there is these erosion marks in the back of it that are vertical striations that mean that water was flowing over the edge of the Sphinx enclosure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and the 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 really rough estimate is about ten thousand years old, which pushes it back like seven thousand years. So who the fuck made that? You know, and that puts them back to the dawn of civilization and they're building this? Like the world's largest sculpture? That's it's still the world's largest sculpture, as far as I know. It was built out of it was carved out of one I don't know. Have you Large seen the? Uh, have you been to the Parthenon here in Nashville and seen the statue? It's beautiful, of, Athena. Uh, Athena, she's gorgeous. The <laughs> Parthenon golden. in Nashville looks <laughs> looks great from West End Avenue. The closer you get, it looks more like an. Oh, I can't, I'm not going to say. No, it. It, it, it looks like what. Here's the thing: it's doing remarkably well for what once was uh, a, a temporary semi sort of plaster structure that was there just for a temporary function for a state or world fair or whatever it was. In 1920, whatever it was, and and then they people liked it and they wanted to keep it, and so they have effectively sort of. I think it's, it's, I think it's nice, kind of and it does. I mean, it, it's when pretty I cool, but the inside visit, of it sucks. Yeah, we, that's what we're trying not to say here, right? It I, sucks. I try and you know, it's <laughs> I, I drive them down West End Avenue, and when you look at it from West End Avenue, when it's all lit up, it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's gorgeous. When you get up close and you see the chicken wire that's up there over the relief the, work and everything, to keep yeah, yeah, the yeah. pigeons out that sort of thing. It's yeah. like not the Parthenon. It's sure, but you know what? It is cool. My my problem is just that I I really do think that the statue of Athena that is inside the Parthenon Weak. is probably one of the most horrifically. Like we've talked about so much, like I've been very focused on, uh, you know, using drones to capture these street murals, the notion of scale and how that works with creativity and this whole David and Goliath thing of, you know, people taking on things that are much larger than themselves. There's all these things about murals and mural painting that I think are fascinating. But what the fuck is that? Like it is a, like it's probably what, 70 feet tall or something? 60, 50, I don't know, whatever it is. It's huge. And it is probably... Here's the thing, like you could looks plastic. Yeah, so there's there's definitely like a, ma- a problem with the materials of it, but there's also just something about its its posture and it's just the the like just the it looks like a state exhibit. Y- yeah, and it just yeah, which I guess is Can I essentially hate what it was. Yeah, please. Those fucking sticks on the roundabout on Eighth Avenue, the pixie sticks. This is a roundabout that looks like. So, like, have you ever gone to a, a, an old restaurant? And this happens a lot in places, I don't know how I many people have gone to places like in Memphis or New Orleans. Or There's a lot of places that do this. They're older bars where people take the toothpicks and throw them at the sort of uh, drop ceiling, shitty sort of drop smoke covered, whatever drop ceiling, you know. And all, you know, you go into like Huey's in Memphis and it's just covered with like tons of uh, toothpicks. Well, that's kind of how I see all that. It's like the. The sculpture is in the middle of a traffic roundabout, and it's basically just this uh, juxtaposition of things that kind of look like pixie sticks or straws or something that are stuck into this almost like pin cushion of a roundabout at all these various sort of angles. Well, my my 
not that's beef that's, with that's it. my incredible description of this. I thing. don't I don't I don't absolutely hate the sculpture itself, but I, memory serves it might not, but I do believe someone that was credible told me that that was around eight hundred thousand dollars. Ooh, um, on uh, to for for the artist, I believe not not including materials, putting it in installation, right. and that was. Memory serves. It might not, so don't sue me, anyone. But I think that was funded by the city. And another one was down by Ascent Amphitheater as well. And then people I've heard get mad at Brian. They don't know what's going on. They think that it's city money going into these murals. For the Nashville Walls Project, which Correct. is not the case. No, it's not. Got it. Yeah, we it's, don't take a right. single penny of taxpayers' dollars. I get the... But uh, no one questions eight hundred thousand dollars of that. that oh, they, shit. they do. There, there's a oh. lot of controversy about. Sorry, and it was that's a Metro Arts Commission project, and and I really respect everything that they do. My thing is, you know, sculpture like that, especially large scale sculpture by a well known sculptor, it's going to be at least seven hundred and fifty thousand oh, yeah. dollars. That's just the way it is in the art world, and. I think cities would be much better off expanding their definition of public art to get away from public art as sculpture, right? Public art is 3D art. And look at like what Philadelphia did. Philadelphia has a tremendous public mural project, and they just simply took a lot of the money that was in the past designated towards sculpture as public art and put it into murals, mm. you know, and expand the mural project. So basically, yeah. just a municipal program. Yeah, you know, and and I have I have a tremendous amount of respect for everything. You know, I worked and still in San Francisco have contacts at the mayor's office in San Francisco to help find walls for artists, and I really appreciate what the Metro Arts Commission does here. You know, they do these things, Thrive grants to help local artists. You know, do mur- you know smaller mural projects and that sort of thing. It's just if it were if it were up to me, and it's not. <clears throat> I would say if you're spending $4 million as a city on public art, um, spend three of the four on sculpture and spend a million dollars on murals. You're going to see a lot more positive reaction and Mm -hmm. a lot more impact. Just a more efficient. And both, both mural or both, (laughs) both sculpturists in town that were, that the pieces are in town are not from town. And if also memory serves, it may not, I also heard there is a sculptor in town that's in like the Smithsonian or something. Acquire? And he's been denied multiple sculptures through the city. I'm not sure. I couldn't I couldn't tell you the name if I heard uh, it. Oh yeah, I don't think I it think it was Nathan that. telling me about my buddy Nathan yeah. Brown telling me about this. Mm. Think. Cities are, all these cities agencies are really in a difficult they're just in a difficult position. Mm. Oh I'm, I'm it's easy to say what I say when I don't know anything about the inner workings of stuff. Yeah. I'm just somebody from the outside, a lowly it, dude, you know. You I could, don't know. You could, you could um, secure the Mona Lisa from the Louvre in Paris and install it in Nashville in a place where people could see it. And if you did that for a million dollars, there are going to be a lot of people upset that you spent a million dollars in taxpayers' money to move the Mona Lisa from the Louvre to Nashville. It's just the way it is. Mm. And that's you know that was one of the. It's still ongoing criticism. I'll see it. At some point, you know, um, I'm trying to, I think it was the Bostan mural. Somebody on social media posted, I wonder how much the city paid for this. Uh, and when you say, well, the city didn't pay a penny of that, then they love it. 
But just the idea of oh, taxpayer money, they should be building, they should be filling potholes and not mm. doing art, or they should be doing this and not There's doing There's always going to be something. There's going to be some of that no matter what. Yeah. Like, I can't eat murals. But then yeah. they love it. And they're like, oh, word, that's cool. I like that. But it lets the artist eat. <laughs> oh, man. Well, you know, so, so yeah, I think um, it's it's so, like, what what you've done in a very short amount of time here is no less than amazing. Really, like, you know, obviously all you guys, you guys are kicking ass. I, I should probably learn how to paint or something just so I can, I don't know, I would need a lot of extra t-shirts that I can get paint on and. I don't know. I'll think about it. But Keep droning. Yeah, do I'll the drone stuff. That's... I'll stick with it. Stick with that. Um, well, I, I think it's probably good to wrap it up. Um, but I would like you guys to talk to me about where. Okay, first of all, if anybody's listened this far, man, they they um, you know, are are a pretty amazing human. Uh, whether they're sort of gifting us their time, or just they left it on and they forgot that it was on. But um, but anyway. Where can people find out all of, like, give me the rundown on all the Nashville Walls Project media outlets, all the things, what's coming. Give me the lay of the land. Well, we've got two murals by local artists left to do this year, and then we stop until the spring. And currently we have three, hopefully four international artists coming in the spring to do walls, mostly downtown. Um, But the best way to check up on us is through social media on Instagram or Facebook, the Nashville walls project or follow our website, the Nashville walls project.com. Sweet. All right. And then, uh, John, what is your, uh, what is your personal cell number? We can give that out. All right, six one five. No, hey man, it's been cool to have you in the peanut gallery. Thank you, um, thank you. So, All at Buka Loop. At Buka on on the everything website. On as Guido calls it, the the gram. The gram. Uh, <laughs> the gram. Uh, and then what about you, Chris? How can people find you? Zydecahedron. Zydecahedron. Find it. Spell that for us. <laughs> yeah. Mystery. Um, we're appearing soon on a Vimeo uh, film about uh, Yeti coolers. <laughs> Yeti, come on, let's do this. Actually, it is a no-brainer. I'm not going to lie. Yeti should totally sponsor the Nashville Walls Project and all the people. You're outside the whole time. You're in all forms of weather. This stuff can be... Awesome product placement. Oh we can my guarantee awesome Putting product. cans on ice to keep them the low pressure down, yeah. too. Oh my! Okay, like so. Here's it. I don't know how anybody gets a sponsorship, but we're gonna we're gonna figure that. That makes sense. Only if we can take because we've already bought all of their shit. <laughs> so. It's either Yeti or First Light at this point. <laughs> um, all right, dudes. Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Brian. Stay out of trouble, and then I'll talk to you again in about thirteen to seventeen seconds. <laughs> <laughs>